Do we have any questions or ideas left over from whenever we were last together? Which was just last week, wasn't it? Okay. We are on number 104. And that's what we do last week. We did the whole thing about... Oh, yes, I remember. Number 104. We must strike the balance, the Master said, between non-attachment to outer things and sensible concern for our present realities. It's a very great sentence just right by itself. So long as a person is centered in body consciousness, he must take sensible care of his body. It is important spiritually also to take reasonable physical precautions, proper diet, proper exercise, fresh air and sunlight. These things are necessary for a well-rounded existence. The Master once wrote me, keep exercised and body fit for God-realization. He also scoffed, however, at excessive preoccupation with one's own health, perhaps partly to encourage us not to be over-concerned over it. He would sometimes give us money for ice cream, a thing that health faddists would frown upon. Make God, not food, your religion, he said. Many faddists only weaken their systems by depending excessively on dietary principles. Oh, they'll cry, I didn't get my avocado today, my spine feels weak. That very preoccupation with secondary matters only weakens their willpower. Their very attitude toward life becomes spineless. Such concern for superficialities is like working to seal the cracks in a plaster wall when termites are eating away at the foundation. Very vivid, isn't it? Um, A lot of people start in on uh, the spiritual path through some kind of dietary or physical thing. It it often occurs, the first thing that occurs to us in terms of influencing our own state of mind and our own destiny is often what we're eating and, you know, the physical body that we live in. So it's it's an interesting beginning point that often serves us well and it does become a little complicated on the path and every um, every ashram has to go through it. I remember at the time when in the 70s when all of these movements were just starting in vegetarianism and there were lots of fad diets and macrobiotic and the mucusless diet and this and that. There was a man who uh, I believe he was part of the TM at that time, Transcendental Meditation, and he went to a convention a, a, a TM convention and there was much more conversation about diets and warring fads and so on than any other and so he wrote this little booklet which somehow I don't have a copy of anymore but we all remembered it and it just made, made the rounds and it was called the Kabunza Diet and it told the story as these stories are often told about some man who got lost in the jungle somewhere of South America and was rescued by this isolated tribal people and when he got involved with these people, he discovered that they were the most powerful people he knew and they were particularly good at volleyball and they could play volleyball really into their 90s and they were just such forceful people and they had a mono diet. This is sort of, sort of syrupy, dark substance which he managed to smuggle out of the jungle and bring back to America and had analyzed and it was chemically identical to Hershey with almonds. <laughs> so he presented the whole Kabunza diet which was nothing but Hershey with almonds. And there are all these different recipes, you know, like, like Kabunza soup, <laughs> Kabunza frozen, 
Kubunza Surprise, which was Hershey on the bottom, Hershey on the top, and Hershey in the middle. Because <laughs> this was all a mimic of everything that you saw. And uh, then he had this whole section about what you might expect when you get on the Kubunza diet. And he said, you can anticipate a healing crisis. Your face may break out in pimples. Your teeth may begin to rot. <laughs> he said, but don't give up. Just stick with it, you know. Once the crisis is over, and on and on and on. But it's not a joke. <laughs> Even though we laughed a lot at the Kabunza diet, it was every time, every anything would get too extreme, someone would bring up the Kabunza diet. Um, they're actually, when the macrobiotic first thing came out, it probably still does, you had recipe for brown rice. Then you had brown rice with tamari. Then you had brown rice with salt. I mean, these were actual recipes. <laughs> Each might be complete. <laughs> they, um, I think it was Dave Warner, actually. At one time, they did the monks' cookbook, and it was a Christmas present. They gave it to us. This was all the monks who lived in their trailers. I actually have this one. And the monks' cookbook consisted of things like peanut butter. <laughs> Ingredients, one jar of peanut butter, one spoon. If you don't have a spoon, you can just use your finger. It said, you know, remove lid. <laughs> and then there was chips with peanut butter. <laughs> Chip, and then there was chips. And then there was chips a la. That's what he called it. <laughs> with peanut butter on it. Anyway, it was the same, <clears throat> all too much to the point. The end of it is, in every ashram we've ever been in, people become interested in what I can do with my body because it's easier to think about than what I can do with my mind. And I myself, I have this story in uh, the story of Swami Kriyananda about the, the, egg, the so-called eggnog I made for Christmas in which I just substituted all the right ingredients for all these health food ingredients and just made this horrible concoction. And when Swami came on Christmas Eve, he intuited that I had done something wrong. He'd given me the recipe. I refused to follow it because it caused, called for sweetened condensed milk, which was full of sugar. And uh, that was the main thing. So I substituted thick powdered milk. I, you know, like, what was I thinking? Because condensed milk was thick, so I, I added extra powdered milk. And then I used raw honey. And Swami, I, it was so sweet. Swami came in and he asked to sample it. This was our very first real Christmas at Ananda Village. And he asked to sample it. He went like that. Took a little sip in his mouth. Hmm. Then he walked over to the sink and very delicately just opened his mouth and let it fall out. You know? He didn't exactly spit it. He just released it into the sink. <laughs> and then he said so tactfully, I still vividly remember. Hmm. He said doesn't taste exactly as I remember it. <laughs> oh, oh, I made a few changes. <laughs> and then it was a, there was a blizzard, and he sent Seva out in the blizzard from the seclusion retreat to North San Juan to buy the right ingredients. An hour and a half later, in the blizzard, she comes back in this little tiny nothing gas station store. They had all the ingredients, and we remade the whole thing correctly. But I began to think after that that I was missing the boat. And, uh, but it, it was hard to let it go because you, you, you think that the spiritual path is about discipline. You think the spiritual path is about self-denial. You think it's about purity. You think it's about controlling your appetites. All of these things are all valid. 
um, you start uh, wanting to uh, Im- improve the vibration, you know, that you're living in. And all of these things are not false. But as Master said, it's just so easy to just move over here. And you're really just very, you become very materialistic in the name of trying to be spiritual. And, and what Swami finally said, which was what Master said to him, that the way to God is a pure heart, not a pure stomach. And I heard Swami, uh, Swami Kriyananda and Swami Keshav Das, who was a, a well-known teacher at that time. He, he died 25 years ago or 20 years ago. But, um, and the two of them were talking, and they were both talking about the fanaticism within their ashrams on this point. And they said something that was very interesting. They said, in a more advanced age on the planet, Treta Yuga, Satya Yuga, he said, and the way they described it, when, when the material veil is thinner, he said, a little bit of physical purification will actually enable you to sort of, re- will release you from that very light bond. He said, but in this age, where, where matter is so dense, um, you can purify the body a great deal and matter is still too dense. It's just, it's just not an avenue that actually works. And the, the, the way that works in this age is devotion because that's, it's just a more powerful force against the Maya that we're working with. It was an interesting comment and I've always remembered it for that reason. So at the same time, um, it's never good to be controlled by external things. So you have, to, you have to find this. But what Master said is, you find the diet that works comfortably for your body and then don't think about it anymore. And that's why he, he coined the phrase properitarianism. And even for his own disciples, he wasn't strictly strict about vegetarianism if the body didn't, wouldn't accept it. Dr. Lewis wasn't able to be a strict vegetarian and Master was very casual about it. You know, just the body's used to a little bit of fish, have a little bit of fish or chicken. And he cautioned, be directional, pork and beef are not so good. But you have to look at your own mind and ask what you're doing. Ask what you're doing and why you're doing it. And also then how, how hypnotized one becomes by these things. Now, this is not the same as having real physical um, difficulties with your body that require a different kind of attention. This is when it just becomes a matter of obsession. And even then it's tricky because you have this story, which was, I think, in there earlier about Bernard who was, had enormous things wrong with his body, double curvature of the spine and perhaps only one lung or something like that, but really bad things wrong. And Master had him doing a lot of physical work. But as long as he stayed in tune with Master, he could do it. And as soon as he started being out of tune with Master, he couldn't do it anymore. But I've still, I've watched a lot of different people go through this because there's also people who, whose bodies simply demand a certain attention. And if one becomes careless about it, you pay the price. And you can just, you can keep affirming and affirming and affirming, but you also have to work intelligently within it. So it's a very fine line, but he really wanted us. And, you know, in our community, uh, it, 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 when Swamiji was more involved and we were running kitchens, he, he was always... Uh, he never wanted the kitchen to become too fanatical. He would always modify it, you know, pull it back. 
just you know it's okay to have eggs we can have onions it's 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 all right we we can have cooked food we don't have to have raw foods and whenever anyone would go too far he'd always dispute it on the basis of a master's way of doing it so people did all those sorts of things all through the years at ananda but swami never stood for them he just it wanted a nice diet that tasted good that was well prepared um, that, that, that wasn't based on a philosophy. My cooking at the beginning was so bad because, as he said to me, you were so mental about it, you couldn't actually tell what it tasted like. You know, I just had this, I, I had this first concept. That's why, like, I could use powdered milk and raw honey in, in lieu of condensed milk. I mean, anybody with a functioning taste bud would have been able to tell the difference. But I just had this mental theory about it. I mean, it sounds crazy, but it just, as transparent as that was, as that was going to be so unsatisfactory, it really didn't occur to me. And that was, uh, in those days, people were doing very extreme things. Ramurti was pretty extreme. You can ask him about it sometime. (laughs) I don't think he was actually the one who baked it, but somebody made, instead of a chocolate cheesecake, they used tofu and carob because it looks like a cheesecake. But that became the absolute, I don't know whether you would call it the iron standard for the worst possible thing you could do, you know, to serve a tofu carob pie and call it a chocolate cheesecake. It was unbearable. (laughs) So, is there any questions? Does anybody have any thoughts about that? I don't feel like that's something we run with yet. Okay. Well, early on, this was actually my very first summer at Ananda. This was 1971. I came on June 1st, and in July, I think it was that summer, uh, Seva had an accident. Um, It might have been, it seems to me like it was part of going to the hospital, but maybe not. So I have this, I might have this confused, but since I've started. um, Seva was uh, on one of the country roads, and somebody's car was stalled, and she came up and stopped. And they were trying to restart it by putting pouring gasoline into the carburetor. Is that what, it, what you would do? You poured gasoline into the carburetor and there was a flash of flame that actually ignited her face. Yeah, quite something. Ignited her face. And uh, as Swami said later, she was so courageous. She just said, excuse me, could someone help me? <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, they, they had to put her on the ground. And, anyway, she had to go to the hospital. And, but she was graced. She, she was never in any pain. And uh, her face swelled up like this. She called it her Chinese period. She got this big round face and her eyes went into slits. <laughs> um, but then uh, it all just uh, came off and didn't even leave a scar. She's a very pretty woman. And it, her skin, she had beautiful skin and it all came off. For some reason I feel like we were, all, we were going into town to see her. But there was a large crowd so maybe we weren't. Maybe the incidences weren't connected. Um, but whenever we'd go into town, town was a very, you see Nevada City now, it's this charming tourist village. It was just a, a nothing place at all. There was almost nothing that was enjoyable, just, you know, the usual functional things, the lumber yard. The, but there was Swenson's Ice Cream Parlor, which was really our place. And Swamiji really liked ice cream, Master used to give them ice cream. It, Swami also did things like Master would give them money for ice cream. And so... Many times as I look back on Swami, I realized he would reenact things that reminded him of Master. And how many times he told us that Master would give the monks money for ice cream. And so whenever he would go into town, he would often go 
usually go to Swenson's and have some ice cream. And he would take us all with him. And, uh, but I was very, very strict. And I was very strict about sugar especially. Just, and and it, was, it was totally distorted. I can tell the distortion because I thought in some part of me that I was very spiritually advanced because my diet was so strict. And it had been so strict for so long. Now, I mean, it wasn't spiritually advanced like I was arrogant about it. But I equated that strictness of that diet with some kind of, you know, serious progress on the spiritual path. Um, when it wasn't a sign of anything at all except just a starting point on the path. And, you know, different disciplines mean less or more for people. I was speaking with a friend recently who, who said that he's never missed a morning or an evening meditation. He just always, he can always do it. But then he, he said something very interesting. He said, but it really doesn't mean anything that I can do that. He just sort of like, it's just something he knows how to do, but he can tell that it, it's not really that big an accomplishment to do it. Of course, it's a nice thing to do, but th- we just sort of learn certain things. And then to just live in them and keep calling them a big deal often confuses us spiritually. And so to a certain extent, um, I'm, I'm not at all good at fasting or at all or anything like that. But I can eat really simply, really for a long time. It just doesn't mean that much to me. It's not like it's some big victory. So the fact that I was so good at my fanatical diet was not really a sign of anything particularly. It was just a habit from the past that I brought over. But you know, being at Ananda, being all, everyone on the spiritual path, it's this, it's this process of you start with your own ideas about things and then you have to really pay attention to where you are and, and not just bring to it what you already know, but, but, but try to listen and see what you're being told. Because some of what we bring is a real accomplishment that's worth bringing. Some of it is just a habit and some of it is a bad habit memories of other incarnations that either don't apply or the actual point now is to balance them. And this was an issue, especially at the beginning of Ananda, less so now because we're well established. But, But people would consider that Ananda was wrong because it didn't match the ideas that they were bringing into it. Diet was one of the areas where people would would become quite self-righteous about things. But when I, we went in to have the ice cream and there was a whole lot of people at the table and I was at one end and Swami was at the other. It was just the way it happened. And Swami made, in, in memory, and I, I suspect he did it a lot for my sake. I mean, or he was conscious of it. But I remember it being an extremely exaggerated exuberance about the ice cream. And, and big conversations about caramel versus chocolate and, you know, uh, ice cream sodas versus sundaes and just this huge thing that was all going on at the table with Swami just way in the middle orchestrating it. And everybody finally decided what they were going to order and they all go around ordering some huge concoction. And I ordered uh, a glass of water without ice. Because <laughs> I just... But I sat there drinking my tepid water, my room temperature water, and they were all eating ice cream. And again, I I have this picture of Swami, 
you know, reaching over and tasting everybody else's and them all passing, I mean, like this big thing going on, and I sat there. <laughs> but it was a moment that didn't go badly, but could easily have gone badly. You know, when you, when you come in with a strong predisposition that, of how things are supposed to be, and then your so-called spiritual teacher, if that's how you feel, contradicts that, who, who do you believe? And as it happened, I believed him. And I could feel that, one, they seemed to be having a lot more fun than I was. And I felt quite left out. And I could just, I could feel that the, there was an aberration here, but it wasn't them. It was definitely me. I mean, it, and from that point, I began to, I just began to question it. I didn't change, but it took me longer to change. But the idea was planted that maybe it's I who I'm thinking wrong about this. Um, Lakshmi, who's married to Puru, Purushottama, uh, she was the one who introduced me to Swamiji. And I knew her um, like in 68 and 67. And then she met Swami and then brought me to him. But she was a very much of a gourmet cook. She's actually, it's very cute, she's actually come all the way to a very, very simple diet now, but she was a like Netra, she was a super gourmet cook. She still is, she just doesn't do it anymore. You know, now her very simple diet is still very elegant, but she was a super gourmet cook and very loved desserts and sweets. And I was a super fanatic. And we used to have a lot of conversations bordering on conflicts about this, about whether or not cheesecake was in fact protein, that kind of conversation. <laughs> she met Swami Kriyananda, she went to his house before I ever knew him. She came back and she said, I've met a direct disciple of Swami Kriyananda. He's a real teacher. We went to visit him. He served us Earl Grey tea and cheesecake. <laughs> and it was like, don't ever say another word to me again as long as you live. And I didn't. I was silenced for years. There was nothing I could say. But in fact, he was, you know, he was balanced. It was just like, this is, it's all right. Let's just be gracious. We don't have to be fanatical. You know, I would have served peppermint tea in a dry cracker, a homemade flaxseed unleavened cracker. <laughs> but he didn't. I always remember that she was so pleased about that. <laughs> well, but you know, it wasn't a, let me think for a minute. It wasn't hard to give it up, but it was hard to I mean, it wasn't hard to give it up in the sense of I understood the need to it, but it was hard to change my, my, uh, my essential... It was hard to enter into it. You know what it reminds me of? I'm just thinking of it right now. Somebody was talking about the, uh, the land of golden sunshine and specifically mentioned the, the dancers coming in at the beginning. And I thought of this when we were watching the film the other night. The dancers come in. Of course, we have the sound effects of the wind and the thunder and so on. But uh, someone was saying, who just watched it at home, they knew immediately what the dancers were. Even though there'd been no verbal explanation at all, they knew that this was a, a physical representation of the storm. That's just what was happening. It was, when I watched the film, that's what I thought too. Oh, you know, because at one point I wondered, because you, you dance for three minutes before um, Mamurti says the November winds. But there was no question. You just simply were those forces and it was obvious. And I was talking about uh, what it took for, for you all to, 
be able to be that intense and that loud and that uh, powerful and just all the different things instead of our sort of blessed Jesus, meek and mild kind of way of approaching things. But when I was just thinking now about even when it was okay in my mind to not have to be so tight about all of this, I didn't know how to unwind. Because you, you, you develop a certain inner value system that's based on being a certain way. And even when you've decided you don't want to be that way, uh, you just you don't know. You don't have a, a habit. You, you just sort of try to go in a new direction, but you don't know how to do it. You don't know how to be loud and powerful if loud and powerful is required, and you have to keep pushing against the edge of it. So I was cooking, and Swami kept pushing me against the edge of that, and I was always having to you know, to resist my own tendencies and push against it. It's, we, learn in, we learn in everything that we do. You know, something may appear not to be all that important, but we learn just by, because everything is a, an opportunity for an authentic, inspired expression from our inner self, no matter how trivial it is in itself. And, you know, I was in the kitchen for a couple of years, and by the end of that, I was quite at ease with all of this and and became actually adept at, as, at being able to make sattvic food that people liked that satisfied my sense of what was healthy and everyone else's sense of what was good and you know, just sort of all of that but it, it wasn't uh, automatic I didn't have any intuition because I had so blocked that intuition you know that his state I was so mental about it I couldn't taste it I had to to get into I had, you know odd it sounds odd but I had to get into my senses I had to get into my capacity to taste because the the austerity that I probably had developed in previous incarnations just wasn't appropriate for this life it, it wasn't it wasn't going to take me to God and that, that's what you have to ask yourself it's not so much like what is it inherently but is this quality on my way to God and that's why my friend who said, you know, he never misses a meditation. He just never does. It's good. It's, he shouldn't, certainly shouldn't become careless. But it's, it's not as much of a landmark on his way to God. There's other things that he really has to be working on. That one just doesn't mean that much to him. It's fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. Okay, any other thoughts or questions on this? Yes. Chandra? You mentioned being authentic about what you do. Um, what about when a lot of what you do, you're doing for somebody else and you're supposed to try and figure out what it is they want? Well, if you're, if you're working for someone and you have to be supportive of them, that's a, a high level of service. If you're just trying to please people and your sense of value comes from everybody liking you, that's something different. Depends on what you're talking about. This would this would be um, doing trying to figure out what somebody else wants because if you don't do what they want, then well, you'll just have to keep doing it until you do it. Well, it, it's under the relationship matters. I I know that there's a story in uh, the um, Swami Kriyananda book about a woman who was working for someone in our community as a secretary, and she took it upon herself to edit his letters and rewrite them and tell him how he ought to do it and. Um, he became quite irate about that and 
when she protested that she was just trying to be helpful, Swami said, I wouldn't want my secretary to rewrite my letters. And you know, it was like, you're working for him. So, I mean, there's just different levels of what you're talking about. So you can, you can be authentic in helping. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, I'm not talking about you always have to do it your way. I'm, I'm just meaning that you have to be conscious of what you're doing. No, you, you don't always get your way. If, if, if you're somebody's employee, you have to help them. If you're, the, if you're second or third or fourth in command, you have to cooperate. It's, it, it's very annoying. <laughs> Otherwise, yes. I think sort of a key point there is what are you choosing to do and what are you calling the priority here? Is it the literal thing being done or is it the fact that you're helping that you're serving? And you can authentically want to help and serve and that's the point and that's really coming from you. Or you can go, I want to write this letter this way because I think this thing should be done the way I think it should be done. So those are, you know, you can do either one sort of from yourself, but like which one are you choosing? Thank you, Tandava. Okay. Anything else before we oozle on? Okay, 105. Saints often adopt extreme measures in their search for God, virtually starving. Oh, just a second. I want to think. Oh, I, I wanted to deal with this first sentence. I just remembered that I forgot it. Between non attachment. Um, to outer things and sensible concern for our present realities, we have to strike a balance. That's what I thought was a really positive statement, and it's carried on back over here. Because present, sensible concern for present realities is saying that I have, I have to, in, in one of his commentaries on the Gita, somewhere in the commentary on the Gita, when Krishna says that point to Arjuna about being a yogi and that the yogi, the, the path of jnana is very difficult, the path of a yogi is easier. Swami describes the path of a yogi as someone who, who deals with what is and then works with it to, um, like we're in a physical body, the energies in the physical body run in a certain way. The practice of yoga is to acknowledge that I'm living in a physical body. And if I do certain practices, I can get that physical I can move from my relation to my physical body into my superconscious self. He said the jnana yoga, and this is how it's described in the commentary there, just uses the power of his, his intellect or his uh, mind to repudiate that this isn't real at all. There's no point in working with this body because I don't have one. There's no point in sort of dealing with, with the karma because karma is an illusion. And it just pushes it away. And it says that's a very difficult path. That's what the Gita says. It's very difficult. Very few people have the, 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 the strength to hold, to repudiate this reality and still rise above it. Many times when people try to repudiate this reality, it just traps them from the back. And the practice of yoga is to recognize where we are. I mean, just think of yoga postures as an example. We have a physical body. So if we use our physical body in a certain way, it will elevate our consciousness. It will also make us healthy, which will make the body work better. Certain laws of diet, avoiding red meat, avoiding uh, animals that are angry and afraid when they die so that you don't have that consciousness in you. That's working with what, what is. And all of the teachings of yoga deal with where we are and then how to work with where we are 
uh, intelligently and in an inspired way. And that's much easier than just repudiating it. That's what it says in the Gita. So he says here we have to strike a sensible balance between repudiating this outer reality and just saying it's not really there, it's not real, and what in fact is how we feel. And so that we don't get too much of a gap between what we're affirming and aspiring and where we're really moving. I mean, the, the diet is, he goes on to talk about diet as an example of that, where you, you, you need to be sensible within what you can do, but you also have to make an effort with what you can do. And that's why he said, always striking the balance, present realities as, as different to Vedantic realities. It may be true eventually, but is it true now is what we always have to work with. So then, saints often adopt extreme measures in their search for God, virtually starving themselves, which has nothing to do with what he was saying before. For example, or going for long periods without sleep, or deliberately creating discomfort for their bodies. Many devotees wonder if it wouldn't help them to adopt similar practices, even if they are following the more moderate path of meditation and Kriya Yoga. With such aspirants in mind, the master, who himself had undergone severe austerities during his youth, counseled people generally, it is best not to be fanatical in your search for God. And then here, this is the point. Only those with some measure of realization can safely afford to risk their health and physical well-being in seeking him. Without realization, such practices make one fanatical. It's very interesting, isn't it, how he puts that. One time, Henry, who had been reading the life of St. Francis and was comparing the austerities of that great saint with the more moderate lifestyle that Master provided for us, asked him whether it wouldn't be a good thing for us to be more austere. The Master answered him, when God gives more, take it. (laughs) I love that. (laughs) He knows what is right for you. Indeed, I've experienced that, Swami says, perhaps because the present age is less heavily burdened with physical deprivations than in the days of St. Francis. Even our tests, however intense, tend to be more psychological in nature. That's also an interesting comment, isn't it? There's several parts in this one that I find interesting, that you have to have a certain degree of realization before those kinds of austerities actually can help you. And that's again where we get mental about our spiritual path. Well, Francis went without shoes, I'll go without shoes. We we went through these periods at Ananda where you would suddenly hear that, well, so-and-so is trying to live without heat this winter. And then you hear that so-and-so has pneumonia. (laughs) (laughs) Or this one is going barefoot through the winter. Or that one has stopped combing his hair. You know, it's just like, it, it just because these thoughts would come to us and that we would think that was how we were supposed to behave. And we always had Swamiji and we always had Swamiji talking to us about Master. And it's, it's extremely important to pay attention to the example that's set and not just sort of dismiss it. This is the same thing I was saying about we, we get these ideas in our mind. I had this idea in my mind that ice cream was bad, but right in front of me, Swami was enjoying it. So I had, to, I had to reconcile that. So we have this idea that we ought to be more like this. I remember a, a man moved to Ananda village at a certain point when I was living up there and he had his program like this. And his program was always putting him at odds with what was going on. 
I remember actually one Christmas, we did an all-day meditation and then a, a, a small group of people, one man in particular, was determined that eight hours wasn't enough. We were going to meditate all night. And then they sort of, a little group stayed up and meditated all night. But the next day when the next phase of the Christmas celebration started, which was the social Christmas and all of these things, they were sound asleep and couldn't enjoy it. And it was sort of like, it looked like a good idea, but they weren't trying to tune in to the flow of energy around them. And when this gentleman was there and he was telling me all the things he was going to do, I sort of said, why don't you just kind of go with the program that's here? Go with the program. He kind of like didn't know what I was saying to him. It's like, you know, this is the meditations, this is the service, this is the work. Why don't you just try just doing what's going on here? In other words, try not only to have your own ideas, but try to get in tune. Try to get in tune with the flow of energy. And it's not like those things are important in themselves, but very often the, the fight against it is not to our benefit. And, 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 and then there's just simply what Master says. When God gives more, take it. But that doesn't mean that God wants you to have more because when God takes it away from you, you also have to let it go. It's just more looking to see where are we and what are we doing. And then Swami adds, in this age, our tests tend to be more psychological. And Swami said, you know, the age, in the time of Francis, life itself was so difficult for them to be austere at all, looks to us so extreme. Whereas I think everyday life would have been for us just this huge tapasya, just because of the way things were. So they, when they even had to back up a little, it began to look like a lot. And who knows, it was Kali Yuga. They had to do something very dramatic. But you also know that they, were, they enjoyed themselves. Francis, it was very joyful for them to be living like that. And so that's always... Swami tells the story of uh, some uh, group of sadhus he saw in India at one point. And they had an odd practice. Maybe it was holding their hands in the air, or maybe it was never lying down to sleep. They sort of had something like... You, was, yeah, it was the hand in the air. And he said most of the ones who were doing it, their bodies were swollen and they, they just didn't look, they, they weren't inspiring, except for one. One who was just looked radiant and joyful and saintly and the, what he was doing with his body had not deformed his body at all. And it was like, for him, it was a real and positive practice. But for the others, and this is where Master says, um, unless you have sufficient realization, it makes you fanatical. But, you know, because it's hard because Master himself did all these austerities. But he was guided from inside. And, and this is where it comes. It's like, it's one thing when you genuinely feel inwardly called to follow a certain whatever it might be. It doesn't have to be a physical diet thing. It may just be certain attitudes, certain conditions you need to put on your life, whatever it might be. It's different to be inwardly called than to be mentally attracted. I talked about how just before Swamiji stopped being a Swami and got married for a period of years, the community was just becoming austere, uh, austere without inspiration. People, it was becoming a monastic community, not because people really felt called by God to be monastics, but because they thought they ought to be. And it was, the whole thing was just falling over to the side because it, it was mental. It wasn't really called by God. And that's a very subtle point. 
We just have to work with that on our, on our own, each one of us. We do have a tendency to think, uh, we have a tendency to think when we're doing the wrong thing, that more of it will be better. <laughs> we tend not to see where, our, where we really ought to go. That's why community is helpful. I, I've had more than one occasion when my friends have mocked me out of my wrong attitudes. <laughs> Just like, you know, that's the nuttiest thing I've ever heard, Asha. Oh, okay. You have to listen. Okay? Yes, Tanda. I was just thinking about how, um, you know, you said in St. Francis's time, life itself was so different now that, you know, it was really only a small change to get that Mm -hmm. uh, austere. And, you know, if you think of it in that sense, you know, we're living here in Silicon Valley, you know, most of us without multi-million dollar homes. Oh, yeah, it's true. (laughs) You know, I, I, I moved from... I from you know a nice large one bedroom apartment to pay more for a small studio yeah. and people are like oh but you have to live there and you know you have yeah. to pay more and it's so small it's like i love it yeah. it's fantastic because it's the right thing the and right thing. but to other people it it looks like oh this is so horrible well you know it, it no it's true I, I i've told you all when i was talking to the group in bangalore about just dropping everything and moving to Ananda Village. And, uh, you know, I had no plan at all, none whatsoever. And their, their question was, because it was India, what did your parents think? And I said, I didn't ask them. <laughs> Which was just like, you know, the whole room just rattled with that answer for a few minutes. Then I just decided to make it worse. And even if they had told me not to, I would have done it anyway. <laughs> I did say I am American, which was self-evident, but I had to add that point. But the, what, what I was, the point of it that I was thinking was, it wasn't, it wasn't a big sacrifice. It was just the natural thing for me to do. And that's, that's how it really needs to come out for you. It doesn't mean you're not fighting against your own nature. Some things are easier. My friend who can meditate every morning and night, he doesn't have to fight against his own nature. It just happens for him. Just, that's just, he needs to do it. That's how he does it. But, uh, and others have to struggle to sort of get that kind of discipline routine in their life. And so it doesn't mean that you don't put out willpower. But there's a certain, just self-evident. That's where, it, that's where you're looking. That's, that's what your horizon line looks like. So you walk toward it. It's not like you've got some theoretical thing over here you're reaching for. You're just moving very steadily with as much will as you can muster to go towards something. But that's the, that's the best kind of austerity that doesn't feel like austerity. Because if it's too, oh, how much I'm suffering, oh, how much I'm giving up, oh, how hard this is, you can, there can be some of your mental citizens who are saying that to you. But the one in charge has to be saying, oh, come on, you're just going to do it. I remember once I was given an assignment that I was so upset about. I really didn't want the assignment, and I was just really annoyed. Someone said to me, well, you know, you don't have to do it. I said, no, I have to do it. If I had a choice, I wouldn't be so annoyed. It was a simultaneous realization that this was the, this was the appropriate tapasya, and I could rebel against it all I wanted to, but the other part of me just knew I had to go. That is sort of the fine line that you're looking for. Make sense? You learn. You make big mistakes. That's how you learn. Okay? On to number 106. 
the medical doctors, the master said, have discovered God's laws on a certain level of reality. Respect them for their knowledge. Don't ignore them. On the other hand, don't lean on them too heavily. If you continue using a crutch when you no longer need it, you'll never develop your own strength. Very complicated point there. And then one evening he was deploring the fact that during his illness and subsequent seclusion, people had taken to going to doctors every time anything went wrong with them. When I was more actively involved in things, Master said, no one went to doctors. They depended more on God. Now that I've been out of things a little bit, I find them going all the time. Learn to rely more on God. He is ever within you, watching over you. I don't know what to think about that one, actually, because I see more people... Um, think what the actual word is. And not dealing with things as they actually are. And so there's a balance point between, so, uh, between not... Uh, I don't know. It's a very, very, it's a very, very difficult balance. I don't, I don't feel like that, the answer to that is obvious at all. Because I've seen people not deal appropriately with what's right in front of them to deal with because of this idea that they shouldn't. And they also get into this thing where they feel that if they don't affirm a miracle, they're not having faith in God. And so there's this balance point of just accepting what God is giving you to do in a sensible manner without, as, as he's saying here, surrendering yourself too much to somebody else's system merely because it's their system. I, I guess partly I'm not qualified to talk about this that much because I've just, I've had very good health and I've had to, to deal with this almost not at all. So I've observed and I have a, a sort of a sense for it. Do, Swami was totally engaged with doctors. Um, he wasn't at the beginning of his life, but at the end of his life he really was. I mean, he was a, a walking pharmacology and he had... Um, quite a few operations and he probably wouldn't have been alive but he, it, was, it was an interesting cycle with him I could never really quite figure out where he was with it and there's a story that I tell in the Swami Kriyananda book about us insisting on calling the doctor on a night when he absolutely did not want to do it and he was, he was, he was terribly unwell and we just wanted to call Dr. Peter it wasn't like we were going to go you know, to some stranger but he was just intense that we not do it. And finally, we couldn't stand it, and we called the doctor. As soon as we did, he completely surrendered. And when Dr. Peter came, he was totally cooperative. But there was some other dynamic going on there. Um, I think he was taking tapasya for someone or something. And, he, and he, was, he could feel that, and he was just going to keep going. Because his body was so, um, the karma that went through his body wasn't his karma. So it was very confusing. It's extremely confusing. I don't have a clear, I can't make any clear comments about this because I haven't lived through it in this lifetime enough. My relationship to health is I started being very, very, very attentive and careful with my health in my late teens. Which when I think about it, probably is because it's, I've had a lot of bad health in the past. 
I mean, I become so nervous if I don't drink enough water. I mean, I guess there's my weak spine without the avocado. But, you know, it's like I have these, these ideas and I follow them very carefully and I, I stay there. So I don't know what happens when your body starts um, doing odd things, you know? And, you, and it's just beyond your control which way you go and all of that. I think you have to become very inwardly attuned. Doctors have a certain knowledge and you should respect them. Swami had an open heart surgery and had his hips replaced and all these different things. But there's a story that's in uh, Sister Gyanamata's book. And I, I included all this in the book about Swami, that one story. Because after that night, later on, um, there was an exchange of letters between Sister Gyanamata, and they don't name the nun, but Swami said it was Anandamata. And after the night with Swami Kriyananda when we called the doctor, which I never discussed it with him, I just watched it. But then later I read in Sister Gyanamata's book an exchange of letters between herself and a nun that, I, that was Anandamata, even though she's not named in the book. And the exchange is about Master was unwell, and she, Anandamata, insisted on calling the doctor when Master did not want her to. In fact, essentially ordered her not to. And then Sister Gyanamata is writing to Anandamata, and these were her words, how lonely it must, be, must make Master feel when even those who are closest to him don't understand what his reality is and what he's doing. Which is, whatever was going through, he was working on another level, and when she panicked and tried to comfort his body, when he was indifferent to his body and he was using it for some other spiritual purpose, she said, that must make Master feel very lonely. So I pulled that letter out and I wrote to Swami and said, essentially, I'm sorry, sir, I didn't have the nerve. And his response was, yes. <laughs> you know, he didn't, he didn't mitigate it at all. He just took it because I did owe it to him. I saw it. And at the same time, he took all the medical tests and let the doctors do this and took all the drugs and all kinds of things. Very complicated. I never saw, I rarely saw Swamiji. I'm trying to think of when I ever saw Swamiji essentially tell people not to take medical help. Can you remember ever thinking of it? I can't, I can't remember him ever really in the way that Master talks about it here. When I was more closely involved, people didn't go to doctors, they just relied on me. Except, to be really realistic about it, the first 10 years of Ananda, we didn't go to doctors. We didn't have a doctor and we didn't have any money. And we certainly didn't have insurance. So yeah, we hardly went ever to doctors. Dr. Peter came at some point in there, so we had somebody. There was one woman that, in, that I'm recalling that uh, had a major medical condition and received treatment for it. And Swami did say to her, you never asked me for help. Oh, that's and interesting. And she did pass away from the condition. Oh, that's interesting. And I thought that was very interesting. Huh, you never asked me for help. Huh, yeah. I wonder if part of the reason people went to doctors is when Master was there, they tended to pray to him or be leaning on the very fact of his presence yeah. to heal them. But when they were not aware of his physical, 
presence as much. They went back to their old. That's exactly what he's saying. They had more faith when I was standing next to him than they did when I'm in seclusion. But I, I, praying to God, they were also praying to Master. They're praying to Master, and they might have, you know, you you're in the presence of. In the presence of that much uplifted magnetism, you're not afraid. And and your your perception of everything is just more subtle. You know, grosser levels just don't arise as they do. And it's not even like you try. It's just like it just doesn't occur to you. You just keep going because you just don't think about it. Um, because in the first years of Ananda, I don't know, it was also age. And again, I'm not qualified on this one because I just, it hasn't been my karma and I don't want to be presumptuous and therefore make it my karma. It just hasn't been, not in this incarnation. So it's subtle. Hmm. Any other thoughts or comments before we take a break? All right, let's take a break. Yes, Tom. Give Tom the welcome back, Tom. One one thought I had about the conversation we were having before the break is one way to to look at it might be oftentimes the path at the in, in the early days in the beginning is we because of our lack of awareness and lack of centeredness and attunement, et cetera, et cetera, we just make it really complex. And all that we were talking about, much of it was just pointing towards, it's just really quite simple, it can be quite simple, is I do what I need to do to feel, to keep that feeling of attunement with Master, to keep that feeling of bliss, of connection. And so you just keep trying to do less so that you can keep that that feeling of, God's presence, because anything you do that takes that away, you just don't want to do that anymore. And that's the ideal um, measure of tapasya, the right kind of tapasya, like going back to, you know, when I met Swami Kriyananda and just moved to Ananda, it was like there was no tapasya there because it brought me so much of what I wanted to have. So you become a vegetarian because it brings you so much of what you want to have, even if you know, somebody has a, something on their plate that looks still looks really good to you, but there's another part of you that knows that I have more of what I want to have. Uh, did I? I mean, I, somebody sent me a Swami's definition of suppression, uh, and it was a very, very astute. He said, "To suppress is to deny yourself something that you really still believe will make you really happy, but you're just not going to let yourself." have that happiness. To transcend something is to realize that even though you're inclined toward it, you, you really, and oh, and the suppression, and you don't, you don't have anything else to substitute. You just think that would make you happy, but you're not going to have it, and there's no replacement for it. Whereas the right kind of austerity is when you might have an inclination to have a desire for that, but you also recognize that this is going to be this is where my true happiness is, and I'm going to go toward that. So you can take even on celibacy or something like that that still, still may be a challenge for your consciousness, but it's not like you really think I would be much happier, you know, in, in that way of life. I know I'll be happier in this way of life, and I'm finding that actual happiness. 
So there's still a battle. And so it's not like you only take on those things that are effortless. There's still a battle, but you know what you're doing and why you're doing it, and your experience supports it. It's not just a question of this is the theory of it, but my actual experience in that period of time around 1980 and 81 when uh, so many people were joining the monastery. It was sincere, but it didn't really make make many of them, it didn't make all of them happy to join the monastery. It was more like I have to do this. But the the thought really was that my happiness was really over here, but I'm going to deny myself that happiness because this is what I have to do. This is as a joke in that respect. Many years ago, uh, it might have been before your time, Karen, but I'm not sure, there was a, this Norwegian man who was a sailor. He, he was a Norwegian sailor, and he would go on his ship, and then on his off times, he would come and live with us at Ananda. His name was Albert. And he was a, a real great karma yogi. He was real determined. He would just do what was needed. And we had a choir, and uh, he didn't sing well at all, but insofar as he did sing, he was a bass. But he refused to sing bass because we need tenors. <laughs> and it was just the best and the worst. And he was there in the tenor section and he wouldn't leave it. You know, he just stayed in it because we need tenors. It, was, it became the joke about everything. Just, you, have the, you get it from the wrong side. You're missing the point. So anyway, all of that is, is definitely true. Okay, any other comments or thoughts? but you do have to do you have to be at war with yourself that's what I talked about on Sunday what makes devotees fall when you don't realize that this is a war every spiritual allegory in the world is a war some fierce set of warriors is just you know smashing and killing another set of warriors and those other warriors are fighting so hard and trying to destroy you and you have to keep after them and you're bloody and you're bleeding and you have to insist they're just awful and, and uh, sort of the feminist movement says it's because they're all written by men. No, that's not true. It's because it is a war. Just, it is a war. And until you just kind of relax and accept it and get the right weapons and use them properly, that's just what's required. All right. Number 107. Carl Frost, a middle-aged and kindly man, who lived for a time at Mount Washington fell ill. The master agreed that the master agreed that a doctor should be summoned. He also prayed for Carl. Later, when this student was well enough to get up, he was able to look out the window and wave at the master as he was going out. The master called back cheerfully, "Ha ha! <laughs> the doctors get all the credit when it is God who heals." <laughs> I love that. That's so sweet. Remember the story of uh, Sister Gyanamata who was you know, just really almost on her deathbed and uh, Master met the doctor in the hall. Isn't there something peculiar about Sister's case, he said. And it turned out Master knew um, she hadn't been eating because she had sores in her mouth. And she was, she was uh, suffering from malnutrition. And he sort of put the thought in the doctor's mind and then the doctor realized that and they they brought her back from that but uh, it's sort of like there's this this leela that goes on he's also giving us a clue here that even when you when you are engaged with doctors where is your what are you really seeing are you seeing the doctor as the answer or is you seeing the doctor as God's instrument 
Uh, I know Shanti would sometimes tell people who would get very fanatical about, I won't take this drug, I won't take that drug. Um, Swami said that Master said that it was he who put the whatever the principle of antihistamines is, whatever the principle of antihistamines is, Master said he was the one who put that thought into the mind of whatever medical research person it was who really came up with that. And Dr. Peter said in response to that, because he understands these things and I don't, so I'm just repeating, whatever that principle was, he said it wasn't merely that, but it opened this huge doorway to a wholly other way, a whole different, an enormous number, there were a number of very positive repercussions of that single thought. So Master put that thought in because this is Dwapara Yuga and we have to start learning and all of these begin to happen. So it's not merely that he didn't want those methods to be used, which is how people become. I won't take any drugs at all. It doesn't hurt to ask a question about what you're being given and to understand. Swami actually, all, all, all through the years, Swamiji was always trying to find um, broad-based ways of articulating these teachings. Um, where I am in the process of working on this book, I'm at the year 1979, which is the year that Swami devised what he called the superconscious living system. And he, he, and he was so um, exhilarated with the idea that he had a very broad-based way of presenting the essence of the path of self-realization without, in a way that was entirely non-sectarian and would also connect with where people's more where people were in their lives. It wasn't so much about you have to become a disciple of a great master and practice Kriya. It was like one step out from that. Um, so once we were on a, a train ride actually in Switzerland and Swami was uh, talking to uh, Audion Hunter Black and he started just talking about cooperation as, as the unifying theme in everything that we do. And he started just going through different healings and he, uh, different modalities of life, aspects of life. And he, he talked a lot about healing. And he described essentially the essence of Master's way of healing would be what he would call cooperative healing, which is that you, you can't be passive. The doctor has to cooperate with God. The patient has to cooperate with the doctor. But the patient also has to cooperate with divine law and has to put their own will behind it. And how everything starts, if you, if you just add that word into the whole healing method, you cooperate with natural law, you cooperate with divine law, you cooperate with your own nature, you put your own nature into it, the doctor works with you, you work with the doctor, everybody works with the divine, it's all a whole different system. So in trying to sort of decipher what Master says about now that I'm out of it, they're calling the doctors all the time. I think what he's really talking about is passivity, lack of using your own willpower, um, lack of uh, attuning yourself, just looking for a way out, looking for solutions. I mean, there's lots of ways you could say it that would be what he would be implying. And even if you are working with doctors, um, to always remember, ha ha, the doctors get all the credit. <laughs> but it's really God who heals. And to, to feel that, also to feel even in what the doctors give you, 
that the very idea for what they're going to give you is going to be planted in their minds by God. I know when we were with Trishti, when I was with Trishti in uh, India in the hospital, she had her first chemo treatment. We hung a little picture of Master and a little picture of Swami on that intravenous bag, you know, and said a little prayer over it. That's what Shanti always says, put your medicines on your altar and ask God to work through them. You know, be cooperative and be dynamic. Don't just take them passively without thought. So I wonder, I think that's an illustration for um, bring God into every aspect of your life. Don't think that something's separate because it isn't, actually. Yeah, and be grateful to God for bringing you to your doctors and inventing these medicines and all of the things that, that help make it happen for you. And he goes, everything affects everybody differently. They say, and the Prashad in the truest sense, uh, food that's offered, you know, to the gods and to God and through a ceremony and then given back to you, they say that, that true prashad doesn't go through your digestive system. <laughs> it's just absorbed in a completely other manner. And interestingly, when, when there was such a campaign that sugar was such an enemy of life, Swami had an interesting answer. He said, well, the saints in India often give you sugar candy. He said Ananda Moima would often pass out very sweet candies. He said if it was really so bad for you, she wouldn't do that. It's just, if, you sort of work backwards. Of course, between Ananda Moima handing you a, a, a piece of sandesh or something like that is different than buying a half gallon of ice cream and eating it all yourself. <laughs> but it, it, it was still an interesting point. They would know if it was evil. Is there any other comments? Okay. Number 108. Speaking of his own illness, the master said, when the wisdom dinner has been eaten from the plate of life, one may break the plate or keep it. It no longer matters. Now, he's talking about, you know, once you have a certain state of realization, a certain austerity is possible. And he started back here at number 104. He said, we must strike a balance between non-attachment to outer things and sensible concern for our present realities. And later on in one of these he talks about, it's very important not to throw away the privilege of having a human body. Master had eaten the wisdom dinner off the plate of life, and therefore it really didn't matter life or death to him. But when Happy Winningham had AIDS, and was struggling to stay in her body and had already had several uh, experiences of death and return and was just like so unconcerned about dying, she sort of, she asked Swami, like, how long do I have to keep doing this? And then that was when he answered her, well, you know, he, she had no illusions about going into the light forever. He said, when you have to start over with a new body, just think how long it takes to just go through all that childhood and all that struggle with your birth family and then getting to be an, a, a grown-up and then finding your family and learning Kriya again. He said, you might as well hold on to that body as long as you can, as long as you can continue to make spiritual progress through it. And plus, it's a body that is not well is, is also a certain uh, tremendous training of the willpower. My own mother had... Uh, Parkinson's 
for about 15 years, the last 15 years of her life. Um, my sister had, had heard me say this on a recording. And so she hears me talk about our family sometimes and she'll write me later and say, really? Because you know, we, we were five years apart or four years apart. So our experiences are a little different. And of course, we're just different. So we experience things differently. She's, she always enjoys that. But I, I, when I said this about my mother, she was quite surprised. Um, my mother said to me about 10 years into it, just, just like this, this disease has been the making of me. I hate to admit it. <laughs> But it had, it was, because it just called out of her a kind of a determined willpower that nothing had really ever called out of her like that before. I mean, she was a, a very fine lady in many ways, but she just went along with life. And all of a sudden, when her body was deteriorating and she really didn't want it to, she didn't have any uh, spiritual context, but she was just attached to the life she was living. She was like, well, she was a, a little younger than me when she started. I mean, you think of it like that. She was in her late 60s when it started. Yeah, maybe she was 70. But anyway, she was not that different from me. And she was full of life and had lots of plans and just wasn't about to give it up. So she had to struggle. And of course, as, as she very emphatically said, once you give it up with Parkinson's, you never get it back whatever it might be. So every inch, she, she held on to every inch of mobility or independence or, you know, it was, an, it was irritating sometimes. But uh, when I got myself in balance, I really respected it. I think she passed away a much better person for having lived with that for so long. And she'll start with a lot more um, power than she had when she started that life. And also more disciplined power. You know, people can have power, but it's not necessarily disciplined. Yeah. So who's to say? Okay, let's see if we... In the later years, the master, like many other masters, experienced physical illness. He explained that a master, according to the law of karma, although free from personal karma, may take onto his own body the karmic debts of others, and in that way free them for more rapid spiritual growth. This loving sacrifice was the true reason for his own illness. Carry my body, he cried happily to us one day as we carried him up a flight of stairs, and I will carry your souls. On another occasion as we were carrying him, he said, you are stealing lots of magnetism. That's good. I will help you. When, after a long illness, he had recovered sufficiently to take short walks in the garden, I said to him one day, It's so good to see you walking again, sir. Yes, he replied, it's good to be out again. But this body is not everything. Smiling cheerfully, he added, Some people have the use of their legs, but they can't walk all over. <laughs> you know, it's so fun when you hear, I mean, the, the other side of it is just hearing Master described and how easily and lightly he lived within his reality. Um, back at number 99 when he was talking about, you know, my position is difficult because I, you know, I'm one with God and I know everything, but I'm also in this body. <coughs> For 99, it's so fun because he's, he describes the dilemma of omnipresence <laughs> and sort of what a difficult balance it is for him. 
But in this one, you just see him being so lighthearted. And you can imagine uh, just how, what a joyful freedom there was in the way he could talk about it. But here he was, he was very ill, he couldn't walk, his knees, in the next one or two we talk about, his knees were so profoundly affected. He saw astral demons sawing away at his knees. And yet for Master, see this is the same thing I was saying earlier. When I say to the people in Bangalore that I just moved to Ananda and I didn't even think about it, and they're amazed. And Master says, oh, I just sacrificed my body because it helps everybody. And it, it's just so easy and natural to him. It's sort of like saying, yes, I went over and I fixed dinner for so-and-so because they had the flu. And it, it just doesn't feel like you've done anything really terrific, but somebody needed you. You were able to cook dinner, so you did. So Master's standing where he's standing. He sees these sincere disciples who are burdened with karma. No, oh, I could take some of that. And so he takes some of it, and as a result, he's crippled for a period of time. But he, he, doesn't, he doesn't even see that happening. He just... What difference does it make? This is, what, this is how I can serve. Every week in the Festival of Light, we go through that. Greater can no love be than this. From a life of infinite joy and freedom in God, willingly to embrace limitation, and it's interesting because he says they really embrace it, limitation, pain, suffering, for the salvation of others. Such ever has been the sacrifice of the great masters for the world. And then what comes right after that is here then is the fourth and last stage of the spiritual path, which is to say we all have to reach that point where it isn't a sacrifice. And that was the story between Ananda Moima and Swami where Swami said something, oh, you're so generous with all your attention that you give to us. And Ma said, oh, is that how it looks to you? Meaning... you're seeing somebody you're seeing somebody present here who's sacrificing themselves there's nobody here it's you who are projecting that onto this yes I think sometimes it's interesting to kind of kind of think ahead and put yourself in that kind of position where you can be helping other people for that I mean it's it's one of these little mental games I play with myself sometimes you know because I'm not going to really literally say that I'm running any special anybody else's karma <laughs> through my body, but if I think about whatever I'm going through as tapasya for something to get done or to help somebody or something, sometimes that's just a lot easier than like, oh, I'm going through my own stuff again. You know, I mean, it just sort of depends maybe what motivates you, but it just, it can get me into a different frame of mind of thinking about it which, you know, then even if it is just your own normal karma, it burns off better that way probably because you're, you're just less attached to it. You're just going to let it happen. Well, you know, the, it's traditional. Traditionally, especially in Catholicism, you always offer your sacrifices. I think I've talked about that in here. You offer, you do tapasya, you offer your sacrifices for souls in purgatory. You remember we, we talked about that? You, and it's like, it, I don't know how to get my head around offering you know, I'm not going to have dessert to get a soul out of purgatory. But you do have a very long spiritual tradition like that that is not entirely mistaken. Because when we do um, actively consider the austerity or the tapasya that we're doing as a conscious act to add divine energy um, in some way to the, you know, to the flow of the universe... I think that's a very, very valid way to think about it. 
and it does it does make it impersonal this or even you can just think of it like Haridas said once many years ago it's a good thing that my spiritual progress will help others otherwise I'm not sure I'd be motivated to do it and that's just even just like that well I'm going through this karma and it'll make me stronger make me more compassionate and and therefore it's worth doing because the more I strong I can be the more I can turn around and help others so I think it's an extremely positive way to think about it. Plus, it relates to that fourth and last stage. Yeah. At another level of sort of the same thing, I find that I invariably meditate better in a group because I'm thinking about, you know, supporting the, the vibration in the whole room as opposed to, oh, it's just for me. I mean, there are a lot of things that I do better for other people than for myself. You know, so it, it applies in a lot of places. And it's very smart to realize that. Extremely smart. I remember, um, I think it was Benai back in the early 70s, he signed up to do like every evening meditation. He led every evening meditation because then he would be sure that he would. It was just as simple as that. If he committed himself to do it for others, then he was certain that he would do it. It's one of the ways he sort of developed his own meditation habit is, if I'm on my own, I won't. If I've promised, I will. Yeah, just like that. And I mean, not that I do it for only that reason, but I love doing these books because I have to really go over them page by page and try to understand it. And what's also very interesting is when I read them for class, I understand them better than if I read them by myself. It's really, it's fascinating to me. There's just that moment when I'm reading it for the class, when there's a clarity to it that, that isn't there until that moment. So it's very dramatic. God bless community. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Okay, let's, that's it for tonight. We did, um, we did from 104 to 109. Yes. All right. Do we have any questions or ideas left over from whenever we were last together? Which was just last week, wasn't it? Okay. We are on number 104. And what's what we do last week? We did the whole thing about, oh yes, I remember. Number 104. We must strike the balance, the Master said, between non-attachment to outer things and sensible concern for our present realities. It's a very great sentence just right by itself. So long as a person is centered in body consciousness, he must take sensible care of his body. It is important spiritually also to take reasonable physical precautions, proper diet, proper exercise, fresh air and sunlight. These things are necessary for a well-rounded existence. The master once wrote me, keep exercised and body fit for God realization. He also scoffed, however, at excessive preoccupation with one's own health, perhaps partly to encourage us not to be over-concerned over it. He would sometimes give us money for ice cream, a thing that health faddists would frown upon. Make God, not food, your religion, he said. Many faddists only weaken their systems by depending excessively on dietary principles. Oh, they'll cry, I didn't get my avocado today, my spine feels weak. That very preoccupation with secondary matters only weakens their willpower. Their very attitude toward life becomes spineless, 
Such concern for superficialities is like working to seal the cracks in a plaster wall when termites are eating away at the foundation. <laughs> Very vivid, isn't it? Um, a lot of people start in on uh, the spiritual path through some kind of dietary or physical thing. It, it often occur The first thing that occurs to us in terms of influencing our own state of mind and our own destiny is often what we're eating and you know, the physical body that we live in. So it's, a, it's an interesting beginning point that often serves us well. And it does become a little complicated on the path. And every, um, every ashram has to go through it. I remember at the time when, in the 70s, when all of these movements were just starting in vegetarianism and there were lots of fad diets and macrobiotic and the mucusless diet and this and that. There was a man who, uh, I believe he was part of the TM at that time, Transcendental Meditation, and he went to a convention, a, a, a TM convention, and there was much more conversation about diets and warring fads and so on than any other. And so he wrote this little booklet, which somehow I don't have a copy of anymore, but we all remembered it. And it just made, made the rounds. And it was called the Kabunza Diet. And it told the story, as these stories are often told, about some man who got lost in the jungle somewhere of South America and was rescued by this isolated tribal people. And when he got involved with these people, he discovered that they were the most powerful people he knew and they were particularly good at volleyball and they could play volleyball really into their 90s and they were just such forceful people and they had a mono diet. This is sort of, sort of syrupy dark substance which he managed to smuggle out of the jungle and bring back to America had analyzed and it was chemically identical to Hershey with almonds. <laughs> so he presented the whole Kabunza diet which was nothing but Hershey with almonds and there are all these different recipes you know like, like Kabunza soup, <laughs> Kabunza frozen, Kabunza surprise which was Hershey on the bottom, Hershey on the top and Hershey in the middle. <laughs> because <laughs> this was all a mimic of everything that you saw and uh, then he had this whole section about what you might expect when you get on the Kabunza diet and he said you can anticipate a healing crisis your face may break out in pimples your teeth may begin to rot <laughs> he said but don't give up just stick with it you know once the crisis is over and on and on and on but it's not a joke <laughs> Even though we laughed a lot at the Kabunza diet, it was every time every anything would get too extreme, someone would bring up the Kabunza diet. Um, there actually, when the macrobiotic first thing came out, it probably still does. You had recipe for brown rice, then you had brown rice with tamari, then you had brown rice with salt. I mean, these were actual recipes; <laughs> each might be complete. <laughs> they. Um, I think it was Dave Warner, actually. At one time, they did the monks' cookbook, and it was a Christmas present. They gave it to us. This was all the monks who lived in their trailers. I actually have this one. And the monks' cookbook consisted of things like peanut butter. <laughs> Ingredients, one jar of peanut butter, one spoon. If you don't have a spoon, you can just use your finger. It said, you know, remove lid. <laughs> and then there was chips with peanut butter <laughs> chip and then there was chips and then there was chips a la that's what he called it <laughs> with peanut butter on it anyway it was the same <clears throat> all too much to the point the end of it is in every ashram we've ever been in people become interested 
in what I can do with my body because it's easier to think about than what I can do with my mind. And I myself, I have the story in uh, the story of Swami Kriyananda about the, the egg, the so-called eggnog I made for Christmas in which I just substituted all the right ingredients for all these health food ingredients and just made this horrible concoction. And when Swami came on Christmas Eve, he intuited that I had done something wrong. He'd given me the recipe. I refused to follow it because it caused, called for sweetened condensed milk, which was full of sugar. And uh, that was the main thing. So I substituted thick powdered milk. I, you know, like, what was I thinking? Because condensed milk was thick, so I, I added extra powdered milk. And then I used raw honey. And Swami, I, it was so sweet. Swami came in and he asked to sample it. This was our very first real Christmas at Ananda Village. And he asked to send, he went like that. Took a little sip in his mouth. Hmm. Then he walked over to the sink and very delicately just opened his mouth and let it fall out. You know? He didn't exactly spit it. He just released it into the sink. <laughs> and then he said so tactfully, I still vividly remember. Hmm. He said, doesn't taste exactly as I remember it. <laughs> oh, oh, I made a few changes. <laughs> and then it was a, there was a blizzard, and he sent Seva out in the blizzard from the seclusion retreat to North San Juan to buy the right ingredients. An hour and a half later, in the blizzard, she comes back in this little tiny nothing gas station store. They had all the ingredients, and we remade the whole thing correctly. But I began to think after that that I was missing the boat. And, uh, but it, it was hard to let it go because you, you, you think that the spiritual path is about discipline. You think the spiritual path is about self-denial. You think it's about purity. You think it's about controlling your appetites. All of these things are all valid. Um, you start... Uh, wanting to uh, Im- improve the vibration you know that you're living in and all of these things are not false but as Master said it's just so easy to just move over here and you're really just very you become very materialistic in the name of trying to be spiritual and, and what Swami finally said which was what Master said to him that the way to God is a pure heart not a pure stomach and I heard Swami, uh, Swami Kriyananda and Swami Keshav Das, who was a, a well-known teacher at that time. He, he died 25 years ago or 20 years ago. But, um, and the two of them were talking, and they were both talking about the fanaticism within their ashrams on this point. And they said something that was very interesting. They said, in a more advanced age on the planet, Treta Yuga, Satya Yuga, he said, and the way they described it, when, when the material veil is thinner, he said a little bit of physical purification will actually enable you to sort of, re- will release you from that very light bond. He said, but in this age, where, where matter is so dense, um, you can purify the body a great deal and matter is still too dense. It's just, it's just not an avenue that actually works. And the, the, the way that works in this age is devotion because that's, it's just a more powerful force against the Maya that we're working with. It was an interesting comment, and I've always remembered it for that reason. So, at the same time, um, 
it's never good to be controlled by external things. So you have to you have to find this. But what Master said is, you find the diet that works comfortably for your body, and then don't think about it anymore. And that's why he he coined the phrase properitarianism. And even for his own disciples, he wasn't strictly strict about vegetarianism if the body didn't wouldn't accept it. Dr. Lewis wasn't able to be a strict vegetarian, and Master was very casual about it. You know, just the body's used to a little bit of fish, have a little bit of fish or chicken, and he cautioned, be directional, pork and beef are not so good. But you have to look at your own mind and ask what you're doing. Ask what you're doing and why you're doing it. And also then, how how hypnotized one becomes by these things. Now, this is not the same as having real physical um, difficulties with your body that require a different kind of attention. This is when it just becomes a matter of obsession. And even then it's tricky because you have this story which was I think in there earlier about Bernard who was had uh, enormous things wrong with his body. Double curvature of the spine and perhaps only one lung or something like that but really bad things wrong. And Master had him doing a lot of physical work. But as long as he stayed in tune with Master, he could do it. And as soon as he started being out of tune with Master, he couldn't do it anymore. But I've still, I've watched a lot of different people go through this because there's also people who, whose bodies simply demand a certain attention. And if one becomes careless about it, you pay the price. And you can just, you can keep affirming and affirming and affirming, but you also have to work intelligently within it. So it's a very fine line, but he really wanted us. And, you know, in our community, uh, when Swamiji was more involved and we were running kitchens, he he was always, uh, he never wanted the kitchen to become too fanatical. He would always modify it, you know, pull it back. Just, you know, it's okay to have eggs. We can have onions. It's, it's, it's all right. We, we can have cooked food. We don't have to have raw foods. And whenever anyone would go too far, he'd always dispute it on the basis of a master's way of doing it. So people did all those sorts of things all through the years at Ananda, but Swami never stood for them. He just wanted a nice diet that tasted good, that was well-prepared, um, that, that, that wasn't based on a philosophy. My cooking at the beginning was so bad because, as he said to me, you were so mental about it, you couldn't actually tell what it tasted like. You know, I just had this, I, I had this first concept. That's why, like, I could use powdered milk and raw honey in, in lieu of condensed milk. I mean, anybody with a functioning taste bud would have been able to tell the difference. But I just had this mental theory about it. I mean, it sounds crazy, but it just, as transparent as that was, as that was going to be so unsatisfactory, it really didn't occur to me. And that was, uh, in those days, people were doing very extreme things. Ramurti was pretty extreme. You can ask him about it sometime. (laughs) I don't think he was actually the one who baked it, but somebody made, instead of a chocolate cheesecake, they used tofu and carob (laughs) because it looks like a cheesecake. But that became the absolute, I don't know whether you would call it the iron standard for the worst possible thing you could do, you know, to serve a tofu carob pie and call it a chocolate cheesecake. It was unbearable. (laughs) So, 
Is there any questions? Does anybody have any thoughts about that? I don't feel like that's something we run with yet. Okay. <laughs> well, early on, this was actually my very first summer at Ananda. This was 1971. I came on June 1st, and in July, I think it was that summer, July, uh, Seva had an accident. Um, it might have been, it seems to me like it was part of going to the hospital, but maybe not. So I have this, I might have this confused, but since I've started. Um, Seva was uh, on one of the country roads, and somebody's car was stalled, and she came up and stopped. And they were trying to restart it by putting, pouring gasoline into the carburetor. Is that what, it, what you would do? They poured gasoline into the carburetor, and there was a flash of flame that actually ignited her face. Yeah, quite something. Ignited her face. And uh, as Swami said later, she was so courageous. She just said, excuse me, could someone help me? <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, they, they had to put her on the ground. And Anyway, she had to go to the hospital. And, but she was graced. She, she was never in any pain. And uh, her face swelled up like this. She called it her Chinese period. She got this big round face and her eyes went into slits. <laughs> um, but then uh, it all just uh, came off and didn't even leave a scar. She's a very pretty woman, and it, her skin, she had beautiful skin, and it all came off. For some reason, I feel like we were, all, we were going into town to see her, but there was a large crowd, so maybe we weren't. Maybe the incidences weren't connected. Um, but whenever we'd go into town, town was a very, you see Nevada City now, it's this charming tourist village. It was just a, a nothing place at all. There was almost nothing that it was enjoyable, just, you know, the usual functional things, the lumber yard, the... But there was Swenson's ice cream parlor, which was really our place. And Swamiji really liked ice cream. Master used to give them ice cream. Swami also did things like Master would give them money for ice cream. And so many times as I look back on Swami, I realized he would reenact things that reminded him of Master. And how many times he told us that Master would give the monks money for ice cream. And so whenever he would go into town, he would often go usually go to Swenson's and have some ice cream. And he would take us all with him. And, uh, but I was very, very strict. And I was very strict about sugar especially. Just, and and it, was, it was totally distorted. I can tell the distortion because I thought in some part of me that I was very spiritually advanced because my diet was so strict. And it had been so strict for so long. Now, I mean, it wasn't spiritually advanced like I was arrogant about it, but I equated that strictness of that diet with some kind of, you know, serious progress on the spiritual path um, when it wasn't a sign of anything at all except just a starting point on the path. And, you know, different disciplines mean less or more for people. I was speaking with a friend recently who, who said that he's never missed a morning or an evening meditation. He just always, he can always do it. But then he, he said something very interesting. He said, but it really doesn't mean anything that I can do that. It's just sort of like, it's just something he knows how to do, but he can tell that it, it's not really that big an accomplishment to do it. Of course, it's a nice thing to do, but we just sort of learn certain things. And then to just live in them and keep calling them a big deal often confuses us spiritually. And so to a certain extent, um, I'm, I'm not at all good at fasting or at all or anything like that. But I can eat really simply, really for a long time. It just doesn't mean that much to me. It's not like it's some big victory. 
So the fact that I was so good at my fanatical diet was not really a sign of anything particularly. It was just a habit from the past that I'd brought over. But you know, being at Ananda, being all, everyone on the spiritual path, it's this, it's this process of you start with your own ideas about things and then you have to really pay attention to where you are and, and not just bring to it what you already know, but, but, but try to listen and see what you're being told. Because some of what we bring is a real accomplishment that's worth bringing. Some of it is just a habit and some of it is a bad habit memories of other incarnations that either don't apply or the actual point now is to balance them. And this was an issue, especially at the beginning of Ananda, less so now because we're well established. But, But people would consider that Ananda was wrong because it didn't match the ideas that they were bringing into it. Diet was one of the areas where people would would become quite self-righteous about things. But when I we went in to have the ice cream and there was a whole lot of people at the table and I was at one end and Swami was at the other. It was just the way it happened. And Swami made, in, in memory, and I, I suspect he did it a lot for my sake. I mean, or he was conscious of it. But I remember it being an extremely exaggerated exuberance about the ice cream and, and big conversations about caramel versus chocolate and, you know, uh, ice cream sodas versus sundaes and just this huge thing that was all going on at the table with Swami just way in the middle orchestrating it. And everybody finally decided what they were going to order and they all go around ordering some huge concoction. And I ordered uh, a glass of water without ice. <laughs> Because I just, but I sat there drinking my tepid water, my room temperature water, and they were all eating ice cream. And again, I, I have this picture of Swami, you know, reaching over and tasting everybody else's and them all passing. I mean, like this big thing going on. And I sat there. <laughs> but it was a moment that didn't go badly, but could easily have gone badly. You know, when you, when you come in with a, strong predisposition that, of how things are supposed to be, and then your so-called spiritual teacher, if that's how you feel, contradicts that, who, who do you believe? And as it happened, I believed him. And I could feel that, one, they seemed to be having a lot more fun than I was. And I felt quite left out. And I could just, I could feel that the, there was an aberration here, but it wasn't them. It was definitely me. I mean, it, and from that point, I began to, I just began to question it. I didn't change, but it took me a longer to change. But the idea was planted that maybe it's I who I'm thinking wrong about this. Um, Lakshmi, who's married to Puru, Purushottama, uh, she was the one who introduced me to Swamiji. And I knew her, um, like, in 68 and 67. And then she met Swami and then brought me to him. But she was a very much of a gourmet cook. She's actually, it's very cute, she's actually come all the way to a very, very simple diet now, but she was a, like Netra, she was a super gourmet cook. She still is, she just doesn't do it anymore. You know, now her very simple diet is still very elegant, but she was a super gourmet cook and very loved desserts and sweets. And I was a super fanatic, and we used to have a lot of 
conversations bordering on conflicts about this, about whether or not cheesecake was in fact protein, that kind of conversation. She met Swami Kriyananda, she went to his house before I ever knew him. She came back and she said, I've met a direct disciple of Swami Kriyananda, he's a real teacher, we went to visit him, he served us Earl Grey tea and cheesecake. <laughs> and it was like, don't ever say another word to me again as long as you live. And I didn't. I was silenced for years. There was nothing I could say. But in fact, he was, you know, he was balanced. It was just like, this is, it's all right. Let's just be gracious. We don't have to be fanatical. You know, I would have served peppermint tea and a dry cracker. A homemade flaxseed unleavened cracker. <laughs> But he didn't. I always remember that she was so pleased about that. <laughs> well, but you know, it wasn't a. Let me think for a minute. It wasn't hard to give it up, but it was hard to. I mean, it wasn't hard to give it up in the sense of I understood the need to it, but it was hard to change my my uh, my essential. It was hard to enter into it. You know what it reminds me of? I'm just thinking of it right now. Somebody was talking about the, uh, the land of golden sunshine and specifically mentioned the, the dancers coming in at the beginning. And I thought of this when we were watching the film the other night. The dancers come in. Of course, we have the sound effects of the wind and the thunder and so on. But uh, someone was saying who just watched it at home, they knew immediately what the dancers were. Even though there'd been no verbal explanation at all, they knew that this was a, a physical representation of the storm. That's just what was happening. It was, when I watched the film, that's what I thought too. Oh, you know, because at one point I wondered, because you, you dance for three minutes before um, Mamurti says the November winds. But there was no question. You just simply were those forces and it was obvious. And I was talking about uh, what it took for, for you all to be able to be that intense and that loud and that... Uh, powerful and just all the different things instead of our sort of blessed Jesus meek and mild kind of way of approaching things. But when I was just thinking now about even when it was okay in my mind to not have to be so tight about all of this, I didn't know how to unwind. Because you, you, you develop a certain inner value system that's based on being a certain way. And even when you've decided you don't want to be that way, uh, you just you don't know. You don't have a, a habit. You, you just sort of try to go in a new direction, but you don't know how to do it. You don't know how to be loud and powerful if loud and powerful is required, and you have to keep pushing against the edge of it. So I was cooking, and Swami kept pushing me against the edge of that, and I was always having to, you know, to resist my own tendencies and push against it. It's, we, learn in, we learn in everything that we do. You know, something may appear not to be all that important, but we learn just by, because everything is a, an opportunity for an authentic, inspired expression from our inner self, no matter how trivial it is in itself. And, you know, I was in the kitchen for a couple of years, and by the end of that, I was quite at ease with all of this and, and became actually adept at, as, at being able to make sattvic food that people liked that satisfied my sense of what was healthy and everyone else's sense of what was good and you know, just sort of all of that but it, it wasn't uh, automatic 
I didn't have any intuition because I had so blocked that intuition. You know, that his state, I was so mental about it, I couldn't taste it. I had to, to get into, I had, you know, odd, it sounds odd, but I had to get into my senses. I had to get into my capacity to taste because the, the austerity that I probably had developed in previous incarnations it wasn't appropriate for this life. It, it wasn't, it wasn't going to take me to God. And that, that's what you have to ask yourself. It's not so much like what is it inherently, but is this quality on my way to God? And that's why my friend who said, you know, he never misses a meditation, he just never does. It's good, it's, he shouldn't, certainly shouldn't become careless, but it's, it's not as much of a landmark on his way to God. There's other things that he really has to be working on. That one just doesn't mean that much to him. It's fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. Okay, any other thoughts or questions on this? Yes. Chandra? You, you mentioned being authentic about what you do. Um, what about when a lot of what you do, you're doing for somebody else and you're supposed to try and figure out what it is they want. Well, if you're if you're working for someone and you have to be supportive of them, that's a, a high level of service. If you're just trying to please people and your sense of value comes from everybody liking you, that's something different. Depends on what you're talking about. This would this would be um, doing trying to figure out what somebody else wants because if you don't do what they want then well, you'll just have to keep doing it until you do it. Well, it, it's under the relationship matters. I, I know that there's a story in uh, the um, Swami Kriyananda book about a woman who was working for someone in our community as a secretary, and she took it upon herself to edit his letters and rewrite them and tell him how he ought to do it. And um, he became quite irate about that. And when she protested that she was just trying to be helpful, Swami said, I wouldn't want my secretary to rewrite my letters. And you know, it was like, you're working for him. So, I mean, there's just different levels of what you're talking about. So you can, you can be authentic in helping. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, I'm not talking about you always have to do it your way. I'm, I'm just meaning that you have to be conscious of what you're doing. No, you, you don't always get your way. If, if, if you're somebody's employee, you have to help them. If you're, the, if you're second or third or fourth in command, you have to cooperate. It's, it, it's very annoying. <laughs> Otherwise, yes. I think sort of a key point there is what are you choosing to do and what are you calling the priority here? Is it the literal thing being done or is it the fact that you're helping that you're serving and you can authentically want to help and serve and that's the point and that's really coming from you or you can go, I want to write this letter this way because I think this thing should be done the way I think it should be done. So those are you know, you can do either one sort of from yourself, but like, which one are you choosing? Thank you, Tandava. Okay. Anything else before we oozle on? Okay, 105. Saints often adopt extreme measures in their search for God, virtually starving. Oh, just a second. I want to think. Oh, I, I wanted to deal with this first sentence. I just remembered that I forgot it. Between non-attachment 
um, to outer things and sensible concern for our present realities, we have to strike a balance. That's what I thought was a really positive statement, and it's carried on back over here. Because present, sensible concern for present realities is saying that I have, I have to... In, in one of his commentaries on the Gita, somewhere in the commentary on the Gita, when Krishna says that point to Arjuna about being a yogi and that the yogi, the, the path of jnana is very difficult, the path of a yogi is easier. Swami describes the path of a yogi as someone who, who deals with what is and then works with it to, um, like we're in a physical body, the energies in the physical body run in a certain way. The practice of yoga is to acknowledge that I'm living in a physical body. And if I do certain practices, I can get that physical I can move from my relation to my physical body into my superconscious self. He said the jnana yoga, and this is how it's described in the commentary there, just uses the power of his, his intellect or his uh, mind to repudiate that this isn't real at all. There's no point in working with this body because I don't have one. There's no point in sort of dealing with, with the karma because karma is an illusion. You know, it just pushes it away. And it says that's a very difficult path. That's what the Gita says. It's very difficult. Very few people have the, 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 the strength to hold, to repudiate this reality and still rise above it. Many times when people try to repudiate this reality, it just traps them from the back. And the practice of yoga is to recognize where we are. I mean, just think of yoga postures as an example. We have a physical body. So if we use our physical body in a certain way, it will elevate our consciousness. It will also make us healthy, which will make the body work better. Certain laws of diet, avoiding red meat, avoiding uh, animals that are angry and afraid when they die so that you don't have that consciousness in you. That's working with what, what is. And all of the teachings of yoga deal with where we are and then how to work with where we are uh, intelligently in an inspired way. And that's much easier than just repudiating it. That's what it says in the Gita. So he says here we have to strike a sensible balance between repudiating this outer reality and just saying it's not really there, it's not real, and what in fact is how we feel. And so that we don't get too much of a gap between what we're affirming and aspiring and where we're really moving. I mean, the, the diet is, he goes on to talk about diet as an example of that, where you, you, you need to be sensible within what you can do, but you also have to make an effort with what you can do. And that's why he said, always striking the balance, present realities, as, as different to Vedantic realities. It may be true eventually, but is it true now, is what we always have to work with. So, then, saints often adopt extreme measures in their search for God, virtually starving themselves, which has nothing to do with what he was saying before. For example, or going for long periods without sleep, or deliberately creating discomfort for their bodies. Many devotees wonder if it wouldn't help them to adopt similar practices, even if they are following the more moderate path of meditation and Kriya Yoga. With such aspirants in mind, the master, who himself had undergone severe austerities during his youth, counseled people generally, it is best not to be fanatical in your search for God. And then here, this is the point. Only those with some measure of realization 
can safely afford to risk their health and physical well-being in seeking him. Without realization, such practices make one fanatical. It's very interesting, isn't it, how he puts that. One time, Henry, who had been reading the life of St. Francis and was comparing the austerities of that great saint with the more moderate lifestyle that Master provided for us, asked him whether it wouldn't be a good thing for us to be more austere. The Master answered him, When God gives more, take it. (laughs) I love that. (laughs) He knows what is right for you. Indeed, I've experienced that, Swami says, perhaps because the present age is less heavily burdened with physical deprivations than in the days of St. Francis. Even our tests, however intense, tend to be more psychological in nature. That's also an interesting comment, isn't it? There's several parts in this one that I find interesting, that you have to have a certain degree of realization before those kinds of austerities actually can help you. And that's again where we get mental about our spiritual path. Well, Francis went without shoes, I'll go without shoes. We we went through these periods at Ananda where you would suddenly hear that, well, so-and-so is trying to live without heat this winter. And then you hear that so-and-so has pneumonia. Or this one is going barefoot through the winter, or that one has stopped combing his hair. You know, it's just like, it, it just because these thoughts would come to us and that we would think that was how we were supposed to behave. And we always had Swamiji, and we always had Swamiji talking to us about Master. And it's, it's extremely important to pay attention to the example that's set and not just sort of dismiss it. This is the same thing I was saying about we, we get these ideas in our mind. I had this idea in my mind that ice cream was bad, but right in front of me, Swami was enjoying it. So I had, to, I had to reconcile that. So we have this idea that we ought to be more like this. I remember a, a man moved to Ananda village at a certain point when I was living up there, and he had his program like this. And his program was always putting him at odds with what was going on. I remember actually one Christmas... We did an all-day meditation, and then a a, a small group of people, one man in particular, was determined that eight hours wasn't enough. We were going to meditate all night. And then they sort of, a a little group stayed up and meditated all night. But the next day, when the next phase of the Christmas celebration started, which was the social Christmas and all of these things, they were sound asleep and couldn't enjoy it. And it was sort of like, it looked like a good idea, but they weren't trying to tune in to the flow of energy around them. And when this gentleman was there and he was telling me all the things he was going to do, I sort of said, why don't you just kind of go with the program that's here? Go with the program. He kind of like didn't know what I was saying to him. It's like, you know, this is the meditations, this is the service, this is the work. Why don't you just try just doing what's going on here? In other words, try not only to have your own ideas, but try to get in tune. Try to get in tune with the flow of energy. And it's not like those things are important in themselves, but very often the the fight against it is not to our benefit. And, 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 And then there's just simply what Master says. When God gives more, take it. But that doesn't mean that God wants you to have more because when God takes it away from you, you also have to let it go. It's just more looking to see where are we and what are we doing. And then Swami adds, in this age, our tests tend to be more psychological. 
And Swami said, you know, at the age, in the time of Francis, life itself was so difficult for them to be austere at all, looks to us so extreme. Whereas I think everyday life would have been for us just this huge tapasya, just because of the way things were. So they, when they even had to back up a little, it began to look like a lot. And who knows, it was Kali Yuga. They had to do something very dramatic. But you also know that they, were, they enjoyed themselves. Francis, it was very joyful for them to be living like that. And so that's always... Swami tells the story of uh, some uh, group of sadhus he saw in India at one point. And they had an odd practice. Maybe it was holding their hands in the air, or maybe it was never lying down to sleep. They sort of had something like... You, was, yeah, it was the hand in the air. And he said most of the ones who were doing it, their bodies were swollen and they, they just didn't look... They, they weren't inspiring, except for one. One who was just looked radiant and joyful and saintly and the, what he was doing with his body had not deformed his body at all. And it was like, for him, it was a real and positive practice. But for the others, and this is where Master says, um, unless you have sufficient realization, it makes you fanatical. But, you know, because it's hard, because Master himself did all these austerities. But he was guided from inside. And, and this is where it comes. It's like, it's one thing when you genuinely feel inwardly called to follow a certain whatever it might be. It doesn't have to be a physical diet thing. It may just be certain attitudes, certain conditions you need to put on your life, whatever it might be. It's different to be inwardly called than to be mentally attracted. I talked about how just before Swamiji stopped being a Swami and got married for a period of years, the community was just becoming austere, uh, austere without inspiration. People, it was becoming a monastic community, not because people really felt called by God to be my monastics, but because they thought they ought to be. And it was, the whole thing was just falling over to the side because it, it was mental. It wasn't really called by God. And that's a very subtle point. We just have to work with that on our, on our own, each one of us. We do have a tendency to think, uh, we have a tendency to think when we're doing the wrong thing, that more of it will be better. <laughs> we tend not to see where, our, where we really ought to go. That's why community is helpful. I, I've had more than one occasion when my friends have mocked me out of my wrong attitudes. <laughs> Just like, you know, that's the nuttiest thing I've ever heard, Asha. Oh, okay. <laughs> you have to listen. Okay? Yes, Tanda. I was just thinking about how, um, you know, you said in St. Francis's time, life itself was so different now that, you know, it was really only a small change to get that mm -hmm. uh, austere. And, you know, if you think of it in that sense, you know, we're living here in Silicon Valley, you know, most of us without multi-million dollar homes. Oh, and, yeah, it's true. <laughs> you know, I, <laughs> I, I moved from... I. From you know a nice large one bedroom apartment to pay more for a small studio, yeah. and people are like, "Oh, but you have to live there, and you know you have yeah. to pay more, and it's so small." And it's like, "I love it. Yeah. It's fantastic because it's the right thing." The and right thing. but to other people, it it looks like, "Oh, this is so horrible." Well, you know, it, it, no, it's true. I, I I've told you all when I was talking to the group in Bangalore about just dropping everything and moving to Ananda village. And uh, 
you know, had no plan at all, none whatsoever. And their, their question was, because it was India, what did your parents think? And I said, I didn't ask them. <laughs> Which was just like, you know, the whole room just rattled with that answer for a few minutes. Then I just decided to make it worse. And even if they had told me not to, I would have done it anyway. <laughs> I did say I am American, which was self-evident, but I had to add that point. But the, what, what I was, the point of it that I was thinking was, it wasn't, it wasn't a big sacrifice. It was just the natural thing for me to do. And that's, that's how it really needs to come out for you. It doesn't mean you're not fighting against your own nature. Some things are easier. My friend who can meditate every morning and night, he doesn't have to fight against his own nature. It just happens for him. Just, that's just, he needs to do it. That's how he does it. But, uh, and others have to struggle to sort of get that kind of discipline routine in their life. And so it doesn't mean that you don't put out willpower. But there's a certain, just self-evident, that's where, it, that's where you're looking. That's, that's what your horizon line looks like. So you walk toward it. It's not like you've got some theoretical thing over here you're reaching for. You're just moving very steadily with as much will as you can muster to go towards something. But that's the, that's the best kind of austerity that doesn't feel like austerity. Because if it's too, oh, how much I'm suffering, oh, how much I'm giving up, oh, how hard this is, you can, there can be some of your mental citizens who are saying that to you. But the one in charge has to be saying, oh, come on, you're just going to do it. I remember once I was given an assignment that I was so upset about. I really didn't want the assignment, and I was just really annoyed. Someone said to me, well, you know, you don't have to do it. I said, no, I have to do it. If I had a choice, I wouldn't be so annoyed. It was a simultaneous realization that this was the, this was the appropriate tapasya, and I could rebel against it all I wanted to, but the other part of me just knew I had to go. That is sort of the fine line that you're looking for. Make sense? You learn. You make big mistakes. That's how you learn. Okay? On to number 106. The medical doctors, the Master said, have discovered God's laws on a certain level of reality. Respect them for their knowledge. Don't ignore them. On the other hand, don't lean on them too heavily. If you continue using a crutch when you no longer need it, you'll never develop your own strength. Very complicated point there. And then one evening he was deploring the fact that during his illness and subsequent seclusion, people had taken to going to doctors every time anything went wrong with them. When I was more actively involved in things, Master said, no one went to doctors. They depended more on God now that I've been out of things a little bit, I find them going all the time. Learn to rely more on God. He's ever within you, watching over you. I don't know what to think about that one, actually, because I see more people... Um, think what the actual word is. And not dealing with things as they actually are. And so there's a balance point between, so, uh, between not, uh, I don't know, it's a very, very, it's a very, very difficult balance. I don't, I don't feel like that, the answer to that is obvious at all. Because I've seen people not 
deal appropriately with what's right in front of them to deal with because of this idea that they shouldn't. And they also get into this thing where they feel that if they don't affirm a miracle, they're not having faith in God. And so there's this balance point of just accepting what God is giving you to do in a sensible manner without, as, as he's saying here, surrendering yourself too much to somebody else's system merely because it's their system. I, I guess partly I'm not qualified to talk about this that much because I've just, I've had very good health and I've had to, to deal with this almost not at all. So I've observed and I have a, a sort of a sense for it. Do, Swami was totally engaged with doctors. Um, he wasn't at the beginning of his life, but at the end of his life, he really was. I mean, he was a, a walking pharmacology and he'd had um, quite a few operations and he probably wouldn't have been alive. But he, it, was, it was an interesting cycle with him. I could never really quite figure out where he was with it. And there's a story that I tell in the Swami Kriyananda book about us insisting on calling the doctor on a night when he absolutely did not want to do it. And he was, he was, he was terribly unwell. And we, and we just wanted to call Dr. Peter. It wasn't like we were going to go you know, to some stranger. But he was just intense that we not do it. And finally, we couldn't stand it, and we called the doctor. As soon as we did, he completely surrendered. And when Dr. Peter came, he was totally cooperative. But there was some other dynamic going on there. Um, I think he was taking tapasya for someone or something. And, he, and he, was, he could feel that, and he was just going to keep going. Because his body was so... Um, the karma that went through his body wasn't his karma. So it was very confusing. It's extremely confusing. I don't have a clear... I can't make any clear comments about this because I haven't lived through it in this lifetime enough. My relationship to health is I started being very, very, very attentive and careful with my health in my late teens, which when I think about it, probably is because it's, I've had a lot of bad health in the past. I mean, I become so nervous if I don't drink enough water. I mean, I guess there's my weak spine without the avocado. But you know, it's like I have these, these ideas and I followed them very carefully and I, I stay there. So I don't know what happens when your body starts um, doing odd things. You know, and you and it's just beyond your control, which way you go and all of that. I think you have to become very inwardly attuned. Doctors have a certain knowledge, and you should respect them. Swami had an open heart surgery and had his hips replaced, and all these different things. But there's a story that's in uh, Sister Gyanamata's book, and I, I included all this in the book about Swami. That one story. Because after that night, later on, um, there was an exchange of letters between Sister Gyanamata, and they don't name the nun, but Swami said it was Ananda Mata. And after the night with Swami Kriyananda when we called the doctor, which I never discussed it with him, I just watched it. But then later I read in Sister Gyanamata's book an exchange of letters between herself and a nun that that was Ananda Mata, even though she's not named in the book, and the exchange is about Master was unwell and she, Ananda Mata, insisted on calling the doctor when Master did not want her to. In fact, essentially ordered her not to. 
And then Sister Gyanamata is writing to Anandamata, and these were her words, how lonely it must be, must make Master feel when even those who are closest to him don't understand what his reality is and what he's doing. Which is, whatever was going through, he was working on another level, and when she panicked and tried to comfort his body when he was indifferent to his body and he was using it for some other spiritual purpose, she said, that must make Master feel very lonely. So I pulled that letter out and I wrote to Swami and said, essentially, I'm sorry, sir. I didn't have the nerve. And his response was, yes. <laughs> you know, he didn't, he didn't mitigate it at all. He just took it because I did owe it to him. I saw it. And at the same time, he took all the medical tests and let the doctors do this and took all the drugs and all kinds of things. Very complicated. I never saw, I rarely saw Swamiji. I'm trying to think of when I ever saw Swamiji essentially tell people not to take medical help. Can you remember ever thinking of it? I can't, I can't remember him ever really in the way that Master talks about it here. When I was more closely involved, people didn't go to doctors, they just relied on me. Except, to be really realistic about it, the first 10 years of Ananda, we didn't go to doctors. We didn't have a doctor and we didn't have any money. And we certainly didn't have insurance. So yeah, we hardly went ever to doctors. Dr. Peter came at some point in there, so we had somebody. There was one woman that, in, that I'm recalling that uh, had a major medical condition and received treatment for it. And Swami did say to her, you never asked me for help. Oh, that's and interesting. And she did pass away from the condition. Oh, that's interesting. And I thought that was very interesting. Huh, you never asked me for help. Huh, yeah. I wonder if part of the reason people went to doctors is when Master was there, they tended to pray to him or be leaning on the very fact of his presence yeah. to heal them. But when they were not aware of his physical presence as much, they went back to their old... That's exactly what he's saying. They had yeah. more faith when I was standing next to him than they did when I'm in seclusion. But I... I praying to God, they were also praying to Master. They're praying to Master and they might have... You know, you, you're in the presence of... In the presence of that much uplifted magnetism, you're not afraid. And, and your, your perception of everything is just more subtle. You know, grosser levels just don't rise as they do. And it's not even like you try. It's just like it just doesn't occur to you. You just keep going because you just don't think about it. Um, because in the first years of Ananda, I don't know, it was also age. And again, I'm not qualified on this one because I just, it hasn't been my karma and I don't want to be presumptuous and therefore make it my karma. It just hasn't been, not in this incarnation. So it's subtle. Hmm. Any other thoughts or comments before we take a break? All right, let's take a break. Yes, Tom, give Tom the... Welcome back, Tom. One, one thought I had about the conversation we were having before the break is one way to, to look at it might be oftentimes the path at the, in, the, in the early days, in the beginning, is we, because of our 
lack of awareness and lack of centeredness and attunement, et cetera, et cetera. We just make it really complex. And all that we were talking about, much of it was just pointing towards, it's just really quite simple. It can be quite simple is I do what I need to do to feel, to keep that feeling of attunement with master, to keep that feeling of bliss, of connection. And so you just keep trying to do less so that you can keep that, that feeling of God's presence. Because anything you do that takes that away, you just don't want to do that anymore. And that's the ideal um, measure of tapasya, the right kind of tapasya, like going back to, you know, when I met Swami Kriyananda and just moved to Ananda, it was like there was no tapasya there because it brought me so much of what I wanted to have. So you become a vegetarian because it brings you so much of what you want to have, even if, you know, somebody has a something on their plate that looks still looks really good to you but there's another part of you that knows that I have more of what I want to have uh, did I I mean I, somebody sent me a Swami's definition of suppression uh, and it was a very very astute he said to suppress is to deny yourself something that you really still believe will make you really happy but you're just not going to let yourself have that happiness to transcend something is to realize that even though you're inclined toward it, you you really and oh and the suppression and you don't you don't have anything else to substitute. You just think that would make you happy, but you're not going to have it, and there's no replacement for it. Whereas the right kind of austerity is when you might have an inclination to have a desire for that, but you also recognize that this is going to be this is where my true happiness is and I'm going to go toward that. So you can take even on celibacy or something like that that still may be a challenge for your consciousness, but it's not like you really think I would be much happier, you know, in, in that way of life. I know I'll be happier in this way of life and I'm finding that actual happiness. So there's still a battle. And so it's not like you only take on those things that are effortless. There's still a battle, but you know what you're doing and why you're doing it, and your experience supports it. It's not just a question of this is the theory of it, but my actual experience in that period of time around 1980 and 81 when uh, so many people were joining the monastery. It was sincere, but it didn't really make make many of them, it didn't make all of them happy to join the monastery. It was more like I have to do this but the, the thought really was that my happiness was really over here, but I'm going to deny myself that happiness because this is what I have to do. This is as a joke in that respect. Many years ago, uh, it might have been before your time, Karen, but I'm not sure, there was a, this Norwegian man who was a sailor. He, he was a Norwegian sailor, and he would go on his ship, and then on his off times, he would come and live with us at Ananda. His name was Albert. And he was a, a real great karma yogi. He was real determined. He would just do what was needed. And we had a choir. And uh, he didn't sing well at all. But insofar as he did sing, he was a bass. But he refused to sing bass because we need tenors. <laughs> and it was just the best and the worst. And he was there in the tenor section and he wouldn't leave it. You know, he just stayed in it because we need tenors. It, was, it became the joke about everything just you have the you get it from the wrong side you're missing the point 
So, anyway, all of that is, is definitely true. Okay, any other comments or thoughts? <laughs> but you do have to do, you have to be at war with yourself. That's what I talked about on Sunday, what makes devotees fall, when you don't realize that this is a war. Every spiritual allegory in the world is a war. Some fierce set of warriors is just, you know, smashing and killing another set of warriors and those other warriors are fighting so hard and trying to destroy you and you have to keep after them and you're bloody and you're bleeding and you have to, and just, they're just awful. And, and uh, sort of the feminist movement says it's because they're all written by men. No, that's not true. It's because it is a war. Just, it is a war. And until you just kind of relax and accept it and get the right weapons and use them properly. That's just what's required. All right. Number 107. Carl Frost, a middle-aged and kindly man, who lived for a time at Mount Washington, fell ill. The master, agreed that, the master agreed that a doctor should be summoned. He also prayed for Carl. Later, when this student was well enough to get up, he was able to look out the window and wave at the master as he was going out. The master called back cheerfully, Ha ha! <laughs> the doctors get all the credit when it is God who heals. <laughs> I love that. That's so sweet. Remember the story of uh, Sister Gyanamata who was you know, just really almost on her deathbed and uh, Master met the doctor in the hall. Isn't there something peculiar about Sister's case, he said. And it turned out Master knew um, she hadn't been eating because she had sores in her mouth and she was, she was uh, suffering from malnutrition. And he sort of put the thought in the doctor's mind and then the doctor realized that and they they brought her back from that but uh, it's sort of like there's this this leela that goes on he's also giving us a clue here that even when you when you are engaged with doctors where is your what are you really seeing are you seeing the doctor as the answer or is you seeing the doctor as God's instrument uh, I know Shanti would sometimes tell people who would get very fanatical about, I won't take this drug, I won't take that drug. Um, Swami said that Master said that it was he who put the whatever the principle of antihistamines is, whatever the principle of antihistamines is, Swami, Master said he was the one who put that thought into the mind of whatever medical research person it was who really came up with that. And Dr. Peter said in response to that, because he understands these things and I don't, so I'm just repeating, whatever that principle was, he said it wasn't merely that, but it opened this huge doorway to a wholly other way, a whole different, an enormous number, there were a number of very positive repercussions of that single thought. So Master put that thought in, because this is Dwapara Yuga and we have to start learning and all of these begin to happen. So it's not merely that he didn't want those methods to be used, which is how people become. I won't take any drugs at all. It doesn't hurt to ask a question about what you're being given and to understand. Swami actually, all, all, all through the years, Swamiji was always trying to find... Um, broad-based ways of articulating these teachings. Um, where I am in the process of working on this book, I'm at the year 1979, which is the year that Swami 
devise what he called the superconscious living system. And he, he, and he was so um, exhilarated with the idea that he had a very broad-based way of presenting the essence of the path of self-realization without, in a way that was entirely non-sectarian and would also connect with where people's more where people were in their lives. It wasn't so much about you have to become a disciple of a great master and practice Kriya. It was like one step out from that. Um, so once we were on a, a train ride, actually, in Switzerland, and Swami was uh, talking to uh, Audie and Hunter Black, and he started just talking about cooperation as, as the unifying theme in everything that we do. And he started just going through different healings and he, uh, different modalities of life, aspects of life. And he, he talked a lot about healing. And he described essentially the essence of Master's way of healing would be what he would call cooperative healing, which is that you, you can't be passive. The doctor has to cooperate with God. The patient has to cooperate with the doctor. But the patient also has to cooperate with divine law and has to put their own will behind it. And how everything starts, if you, if you just add that word into the whole healing method, you cooperate with natural law, you cooperate with divine law, you cooperate with your own nature, you put your own nature into it, the doctor works with you, you work with the doctor, everybody works with the divine, it's all a whole different system. So in trying to sort of decipher what Master says about now that I'm out of it, they're calling the doctors all the time. I think what he's really talking about is passivity, lack of using your own willpower, um, lack of uh, attuning yourself, just looking for a way out, looking for solutions. I mean, there's lots of ways you could say it that would be what he would be implying. And even if you are working with doctors, um, to always remember, ha ha, the doctors get all the credit. <laughs> But it's really God who heals. And to, to feel that. Also to feel even in what the doctors give you that the very idea for what they're going to give you is going to be planted in their minds by God. I know when we were with Tushti, when I was with Tushti in uh, India in the hospital and she had her first chemo treatment, we hung a little picture of Master and a little picture of Swami on that intravenous bag you know, and said a little prayer over it. That's what Shanti always says, put your medicines on your altar and ask God to work through them. You know, be cooperative and be dynamic. Don't just take them passively without thought. Yeah. So I, wonder, I think that's an illustration for um, bring God into every aspect of your life. Don't think that something's separate because it isn't. Yeah, and be grateful to God for bringing you to your doctors and inventing these medicines and all of the things that, that help make it happen for you. And he goes, everything affects everybody differently. They say, and the prashad, in the truest sense, uh, food that's offered you know, to the gods and to God and through a ceremony and then given back to you, they say that, that true prashad doesn't go through your digestive system. <laughs> it's just absorbed in a completely other manner. And interestingly, when, when there was such a campaign that sugar was such an enemy of life, Swami had an interesting answer. He said, well, the saints in India often give you sugar candy. He said, Ananda Moima would often pass out very sweet candies. <laughs> 
He said, if it was really so bad for you, she wouldn't do that. It's just, if, you sort of work backwards. Of course, between Ananda Ma handing you a, a, a piece of sandesh or something like that is different than buying a half gallon of ice cream and eating it all yourself. <laughs> but it, it, it was still an interesting point. They would know if it was evil. Huh. Is there any other comments? Okay. Number 108. Speaking of his own illness, the master said, when the wisdom dinner has been eaten from the plate of life, one may break the plate or keep it. It no longer matters. Now, he's talking about, you know, once you have a certain state of realization, a certain austerity is possible. And he started back here at number 104. He said, we must strike a balance between non-attachment to outer things and sensible concern for our present realities. And later on in one of these he talks about, it's very important not to throw away the privilege of having a human body. Master had eaten the wisdom dinner off the plate of life, and therefore it really didn't matter life or death to him. But when Happy Winningham had AIDS and was struggling to stay in her body and had already had several uh, experiences of death and return and was just like so unconcerned about dying, she sort of, she asked Swami, like, how long do I have to keep doing this? And then that was when he answered her, well, you know, he, she had no illusions about going into the light forever. He said, when you have to start over with a new body, just think how long it takes to just go through all that childhood and all that struggle with your birth family and then getting to be in a, a grown-up and then finding your family and learning Kriya again. He said, you might as well hold on to that body as long as you can, as long as you can continue to make spiritual progress through it. And plus, it's a body that is not well is, is also a certain... Uh, tremendous training of the willpower. My own mother had uh, Parkinson's for about 15 years, the last 15 years of her life. Um, my sister had, had heard me say this on a recording, and so she hears me talk about our family sometimes, and she'll write me later and say, really? Because, you know, we, we were five years apart or four years apart, so our experiences are a little different, and of course we're just different. So we experience things differently. She's, she always enjoys that. But I, I, when I said this about my mother, she was quite surprised. Um, my mother said to me, about 10 years into it, just, just like this, this disease has been the making of me. I hate to admit it. <laughs> but it had, it was. Because it just called out of her a kind of a determined willpower that nothing had really ever called out of her like that before. I mean, she was a, a very fine lady and many ways, but she just went along with life. And all of a sudden, when her body was deteriorating and she really didn't want it to, she didn't have any uh, spiritual context, but she was just attached to the life she was living. She was like, well, she was a, a little younger than me when she started. I mean, you think of it like that. She was in her late 60s when it started. Yeah, maybe she was 70. But anyway, she was not that different from me. And she was full of life and had lots of plans and just wasn't about to give it up. So she had to struggle. And of course, as, as she very emphatically said, once you give it up with Parkinson's, you never get it back, whatever it might be. 
So every inch, she, she held on to every inch of mobility or independence or, you know, it was, an, it was irritating sometimes. But uh, when I got myself in balance, I really respected it. I think she passed away a much better person for having lived with that for so long. And she'll start with a lot more um, power than she had when she started that life. And also more disciplined power. I know people can have power, but it's not necessarily disciplined. So who's to say? Okay, let's see if we... In the later years, the master, like many other masters, experienced physical illness. He explained that a master, according to the law of karma, although free from personal karma, may take onto his own body the karmic debts of others and in that way free them for more rapid spiritual growth. This loving sacrifice was the true reason for his own illness. Carry my body, he cried happily to us one day as we carried him up a flight of stairs, and I will carry your souls. On another occasion as we were carrying him, he said, you are stealing lots of magnetism. That's good. I will help you. When, after a long illness, he had recovered sufficiently to take short walks in the garden, I said to him one day, It's so good to see you walking again, sir. Yes, he replied, it's good to be out again. But this body is not everything. Smiling cheerfully, he added, Some people have the use of their legs, but they can't walk all over. <laughs> you know, it's so fun when you hear, I mean, the, the other side of it is just hearing Master described and how easily and lightly he lived within his reality. Um, back at number 99 when he was talking about, you know, my position is difficult because I, you know, I'm one with God and I know everything, but I'm also in this body. <coughs> For 99, it's so fun because he's, he describes the dilemma of omnipresence <laughs> and sort of what a difficult balance it is for him. But in this one, you just see him being so lighthearted. And you can imagine uh, just how, what a joyful freedom there was in the way he could talk about it. But here he was, he was very ill, he couldn't walk, his knees, in the next one or two we talk about, his knees were so profoundly affected, he saw astral demons sawing away at his knees, and yet for Master, see this is the same thing I was saying earlier, when I say to the people in Bangalore that I just moved to Ananda and I didn't even think about it, and they're amazed, and Master says, oh I just sacrificed my body because it helps everybody, and it, it's just so easy and natural to him. It's sort of like saying, yes, I went over and I fixed dinner for so-and-so because they had the flu. And it, it just doesn't feel like you've done anything really terrific, but somebody needed you. You were able to cook dinner, so you did. So Master's standing where he's standing. He sees these sincere disciples who are burdened with karma. And, oh, I could take some of that. And so he takes some of it, and as a result, he's crippled for a period of time. But he, he, doesn't, he doesn't even see that happening. He just, what difference does it make? This is, what, this is how I can serve. Every week in the Festival of Light, we go through that. Greater can no love be than this. From a life of infinite joy and freedom in God, willingly to embrace limitation, and it's interesting because he says they really embrace it, limitation, pain, suffering, 
for the salvation of others. Such ever has been the sacrifice of the great masters for the world. And then what comes right after that is here then is the fourth and last stage of the spiritual path, which is to say we all have to reach that point where it isn't a sacrifice. And that was the story between Ananda Moima and Swami where Swami said something, oh, you're so generous with all your attention that you give to us. And Ma said, oh, is that how it looks to you? Meaning, you're seeing somebody, you're seeing somebody present here who's sacrificing themselves. There's nobody here. It's you who are projecting that onto this. Yes. I think sometimes it's interesting to kind of, kind of think ahead and put yourself in that kind of position where you can be helping other people for that. I mean, it's, it's one of these little mental games that I play with myself sometimes, you know, because I'm not going to really literally say that I'm running any special, anybody else's karma <laughs> through my body. But if I think about whatever I'm going through as tapasya for something to get done or to help somebody or something, sometimes that's just a lot easier than like, oh, I'm going through my own stuff again. You know, I mean, it sort of depends maybe what motivates you, but it just it can get me into a different frame of mind of thinking about it which you know then even if it is just your own normal karma it burns off better that way probably because you're you're just less attached to it you're just going to let it happen well you know the it's traditional traditionally especially in catholicism you always offer your sacrifices i think i've talked about that in here you offer you do tapasya you offer your sacrifices for souls in purgatory you remember we, we talked about that? You, and it's like, it, I don't know how to get my head around offering, you know, I'm not going to have dessert to get a soul out of purgatory. But you do have a very long spiritual tradition like that that is not entirely mistaken. Because when we do um, actively consider the austerity or the tapasya that we're doing as a conscious act to add divine energy um, in some way to the, you know, to the flow of the universe. I think that's a very, very valid way to think about it. And it does, it does make it impersonal. This, or even you can just think of it, uh, like Haridas said once many years ago, it's a good thing that my spiritual progress will help others. Otherwise, I'm not sure I'd be motivated to do it. And that's just even just like that. Well, I'm going through this karma and it'll make me stronger, make me more compassionate. And, and therefore it's worth doing because the more I, strong I can be, the more I can turn around and help others. So I think it's an extremely positive way to think about it. Plus it relates to that fourth and last stage. Yeah. At another level of sort of the same thing, I find that I invariably meditate better in a group because I'm thinking about, you know, supporting the whole the vibration in the whole room as opposed to, oh, it's just for me. I mean, there are a lot of things that I do better for other people than for myself. You know, so it, it applies in a lot of places. And it's very smart to realize that. Extremely smart. I remember, um, I think it was Benai back in the early 70s, he signed up to do like every evening meditation. He led every evening meditation because then he would be sure that he would. It was just as simple as that. If he committed himself to do it for others, then he was certain that he would do it. It's one of the ways he sort of developed his own meditation habit is, if I'm on my own, I won't. If I've promised, I will. Yeah, just like that. And I mean, not that I do it for only that reason, but I love doing these books because I have to really 
go over them page by page and try to understand it. And what's also very interesting is when I read them for class, I understand them better than if I read them by myself. It's really, it's fascinating to me. There's just that moment when I'm reading it for the class when there's a clarity to it that, that isn't there until that moment. So it's very dramatic. God bless community. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Okay, let's, that's it for tonight. We did, um, we did from 104 to 109. Yes. All right. <laughs>